Welcome back to Second and Short. It is December 24th, 2022, and we're going to get it started with some Thursday night football. Um, as we're recording, game ended about 20, 30 minutes ago, and it, it was an interesting game. A lot of storylines come out of this one, but I do want to start off by saying that the Jets' color rush helmets are fire. Oh my god, the all black is so sick with them. Yeah, and like the uh, like the different colored face mask looks so sick. I love it. They look like demons out there, man. <laughs> probably the only, like. yeah, probably the only positive part uh, of the Jets side of this game, and um, we might as well just start it with Zach Wilson gets pulled in the third quarter. Uh, just they they couldn't get it done. He, he was three for eighteen, ninety two passing yards and an interception. Got sacked three times, like. That that's a tough start, and, and when you're already on the hot seat as the quarterback, you got to do something to to you know make a case for yourself, and he just can't. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, he is under the hot seat, and he just didn't show up. And today would have been the day to do it. Obviously, I I think they were home today, correct? Yeah. And yeah, on top of that, if your offense can't get anything going, it's it's usually down to the quarterback play, and Zach Wilson. Like you said, under the hot seat, just simply couldn't perform, and he got pulled like he should have. Um, and I know you're going to get into the whole accountability thing with him, but I'm sure that also has you know a part to play in it. And yeah, he just looked like straight trash tonight. Yeah, uh, I I honestly think after what we saw today, that Zach Wilson's not going to be a Jet next season. Completely agree. Um, and I think uh, the quarterback play is the one thing holding this team back. If I'm a Jets fan, I'm not worried at all. If this season was supposed to be a real rebuild season, you guys have done amazing. I think this, uh, the, the sales have lost momentum, though. Um, they have lost uh, a lot of games in a row, and the Jags were very hot. It would have been nice for the Jets to step up and get a win today, but they just couldn't. Yeah, and like the, the biggest question I have about you know what's going on in New York is – why is there a captain patch on Zach Wilson's jersey? Because we've seen multiple weeks now, he can't take accountability. And, and that's like the biggest part of being a leader on a team is taking accountability, you know, putting the other guys on your back. And as the starting quarterback of an NFL franchise, you have to be ready to lead and, and take responsibility for what happens on the field because you, you dictate everything that happens in that game. If I were Robert Sala, when I pulled Zach Wilson, I'd have ripped that patch off his jersey. Because it's just the way he acts. He he doesn't seem to care when things go wrong and, and doesn't want to do anything about it. He he just continues to play the same game, and it doesn't work. Super mature player. Um, I know that the whole thing with like the mom moms and the you know him being a milf hunter that it is kind of funny but after you see games like this and you listen to his press conferences for the past couple of weeks he is a incredibly immature um football player and that's not what you need at quarterback and it's not what the jets need right now especially with them being cold you need a leader who's going to take accountability and light fires under the asses of a dormant offense and he just can't do that yeah, and like when Zach got pulled out, they bring in Chris Streveler. I think that's how you say it. And he just, it brought energy to their sideline. 
and and on the field with their offense. He was electric. He was throwing missiles like directly at guys like five yards away from him. Like he was he he came in. He's wearing Jordan one cleats. It's his first appearance for the Jets. And like you might ask who he is. The guy played three years at Minnesota, transfers to the University of South Dakota, goes undrafted, spends some time in the CFL, leads his team to the playoffs, gets injured, his team wins the Grey Cup, and then hops on a couple of practice squads uh, after spending two years with the Cardinals and ends up in this game and comes in and makes an immediate impact. He was their leading rusher today. Nine carries, 54 yards. Nobody else could get it done. Chris Strebler came in and, and actually looked pretty good. Uh, 10 for 15, 90 yards, uh, didn't get sacked, didn't throw an interception. It's a solid game, and, and that's only because when Zach Wilson got pulled off the field, it, it was like a breath of fresh air for that offense because they knew that it was just going to be something where whatever the coach drew up is what's going to happen. Because when you bring in a backup quarterback, they have to kind of simplify the game plan, especially when this guy's realistically the fourth guy when it comes to Jets quarterbacks. Like he got pulled up off the practice squad. And I think that it it truly is a different Jets team when Zach Wilson's not on the field. Yeah, and to kind of you know, bounce off of what you just said there. It, the way that the team responded, of course, they they still didn't really do much with Strebler at quarterback. But y- like you said, it was a breath of fresh air. I feel like that's a testament to how the team feels about Zach Wilson. Uh, I, I feel like they were probably pretty glad to get him off the field because you you know the players talk um, talk behind his back about his press conferences. You know they talk about his performance, and I'm sure they were kind of just waiting on that to happen. And I'm sure that you know seeing Strebler was a a very good sight to see for that offense. Yeah, and like as you get later into the game, they they did get pretty unlucky. There was like 4 minutes left in the fourth. They they're kind of moving. They get into a fourth and two short curl route for Garrett Wilson, catches it, has the first down yardage. Foya Luakon dives past him trying to tackle him and somehow his foot kicks the football out of Garrett Wilson's hands and the Jags recover it. And like that, that is just such a Jets play. That's classic Jets. It's just the most unlucky circumstances ever. Luicon, man, uh, people need to start putting respect on this guy's name. He, he just finds ways to make plays. Of course, this one was lucky, but I mean, it would be him. Uh, out of anybody on that Jags defense, it would have been him. Yeah, like he he's an outstanding player. Uh I was telling you before the recording that you know they sh- showed a stat on the uh, Thursday night football feed. He's got the longest active streak in the NFL for consecutive snaps played going back to week 12 of last season. He was the NFL leader in tackles with the Falcons last season. Jags offered him a good paycheck. Comes down to Jacksonville and he just keeps putting up numbers. Yeah, and uh to bounce off of what you just said uh, with uh, him last season leading the league in tackles, I'm pretty sure he's leading the league in tackles this season as well with a completely different team, whole new defense. He, he's just amazing. Yeah, he, he really is. And um, I, I think that's really all we've got for Thursday Night Football. 
me and me and Brock will go a little bit deeper into what happened throughout the game uh, on Tuesday. But uh, let's get into what we think is going to happen this weekend. Uh, let's start it off with Giants Vikings. Oh man, I am really really excited about this game because both of these teams are coming off of really important wins. You have the Giants beating their division rivals of the Commanders. The Vikings with a historic win against the uh, the uh, the Colts in overtime. Yeah, that was an impressive game, and you know the way this game's stacking up, the Vikings are a four point favorite uh, over under a forty eight. So it it looks like it should be a pretty good game, and what I see uh, just you know gut reaction is that I think Danny Dimes might have a game. So far in December, he's 64 for 90, which is a 71% completion percentage. He's got two th- passing touchdowns, zero interceptions, and a passer rating of 93.2. And then in the rushing game, he's got 132 yards and a touchdown. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit of vanilla Vic action against the Vikings this week. Yeah. Um, Danny Dimes, you know, he obviously needs to show up, I feel like, to beat Minnesota, but I like how Saquon looked, Saquon Barkley. He looked really good against the Commanders, finally. After about three, four weeks of being you know, not too hot, they finally were able to get him going. He was getting four, uh, first downs in the fourth quarter, really draining that Commanders team. But one thing that I wanted to bring up last week is the Commanders completely dominated the Giants in stats, but they had two turnovers. Almost had the same amount of time, uh, uh, time of possession as the Giants did. Um, more rushing yards, more passing yards, and I want to say more first downs as well. So I, I don't want to call it a fluke win because divisional wins are never fluke wins in my opinion, but I want to say that I think the, the Vikings are going in with a little bit more momentum this week. Yeah, for sure. And and the Vikings come in, and the big priority is just putting up points. We saw how well they played coming from behind last week. But if they want to be successful against this Giants team that is truly contending for a playoff spot, this is survival for the rest of the season for the Giants. And like I said, the key is just putting up points. They need to get creative like they did last week in that second half. Don't force the ball to Justin Jefferson because that that's the obvious read. Every defense knows if you're playing the Vikings, guard Justin Jefferson. So, you know, reduce the amount of times you're throwing into low percentage areas. And instead, do what you did last week. Hit K.J. Osborne a few times. Hit Dalvin Cook out the backfield. Hit T.J. Hawkinson, Adam Thielen. Like, you have options. You have so many options on this offense. And I I think that just, you know, if they can keep scoring, the Giants offense won't be able to keep up. I actually have some really interesting notes on some of the points you just made. Um, K.J. Osborne last week. In receptions, 157 yards and a touchdown. He actually had more yards than uh, Jay Jettas last week. Uh, less receptions, though. Um, yeah, KJ Osborne is a very talented wide receiver, but I, I I really like the point you just made. Hawkinson needs the ball more, and so does Thielen. They are two very talented guys that I don't think have really regressed at all. And yeah, they they just need to stop forcing the ball to Justin Jefferson so much because they they have a lot more talent than they realize. And I feel like they should be running the ball with Dalvin Cook more and giving him uh, more opportunities in the pass game as well. Because he, I mean, that screenplay against the Colts was just ridiculous. Dalvin Cook is a super talented player. Yeah, and that's one of my notes is to watch out for Dalvin at home, especially. 
So this season, in away games, he's only broken 80 rushing yards one time. Whereas at home, he's broken it six times. Six times over 80 yards for Dalvin Cook this season at home. And I think that's going to be a big factor this Saturday. Yeah, um, really agree with that point. Dalvin Cook, you know, he, he just simply needs to get more involved. I, I understand that this is a passing offense, but if you got a guy like Dalvin Cook, I mean, come on. He, he's got to get way more reps than what he's been getting. Um, interesting note that I have about this game as well is Eric Kendricks is listed as questionable. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's the Vikings middle linebacker. He's second in tackles on the team. It could be pretty good for Saquon Barkley. Yeah, it, it could be. And, and that was another thing that I had um, written down with Danny Dimes is that, you know, with his activity in being a dual threat quarterback with Eric Kendricks, maybe or possibly out of the lineup, you know, you have a backup linebacker in. So your passes over the middle might be a little bit easier. But on top of that, maybe you have a couple more opportunities to scramble and, and make a play out of nothing. Yes, I, I would like to see more um, broken plays by Daniel Jones instead of just throwing the ball away or taking sacks. He can run. He's very talented. He's super shifty, even though he doesn't look like it. I would like to see him try to make more plays, be more aggressive. I mean, you know, you're at the brink of your season. You're eight and five, which looks pretty good, but your division is really fucking good this year. So you got to step it up. So might as well just go all out. Yeah, you don't get the vanilla Vic nickname for nothing. But um, one last thing I want to say, I, I really like the over in this game. Uh, the line, like I said, is at 48, and the Vikings are on a four-game over streak and are nine for five this season by hitting the over. So 48 points, cash that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and uh, we'll go ahead and get into Eagles-Cowboys. Um, it, this game looked huge on the schedule before Jalen Hurts goes down with the injury so you got no Jalen Hurts this week but Gardner Minshew is a serviceable quarterback especially with all the weapons on this offense uh for sure for sure um I I don't know I kind of feel like um with Jalen Hurts being out I kind of I think it takes the takes the wind out of the sails of this game just a little bit but it's still a division rivalry. It's actually the two top teams in the division that have both already clinched the playoffs. So it may not be as heated, but you you know, with the Cowboys and the Eagles, it's always going to be an entertaining game, and they're going to go all out. I think Dak has a lot to prove this game. His last five games, he has 11 touchdowns but seven interceptions. He he has been, I think, the sole reason that they have kept games close, other than their defense letting you know a lot of points go, but. I feel like Dak really needs to step up here. And I also wanted to point out that the two starting quarterbacks for the um, Eagles and the Cowboys, they haven't even played each other this year. Jalen Hurts and Dak Prescott have not played each other in the two matchups uh, that we will see this year. Interesting. And one thing that I think is going to play in Gardner Minshew's favor is the ability that his top two wide receivers have for screens. A.J. Brown, though we see him you know, run it downfield for Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown is an elite player on the screen. He's super strong, very physical, and that can really help him out. And then Devontae Smith, we saw that at Alabama. He's a screen machine. Like The kid will get the ball, and anything can happen when the ball gets in his hands early in the play. And then Miles Sanders has proven that he can carry the load with the rushing yards before. And so I wouldn't count out the Eagles just because they're missing Jalen Hurts. 
Yeah, um, they actually ran the ball a fuck ton against Dallas in the first matchup earlier this year when it was uh, Cooper Rush versus Jalen Hurts. Um, kind of surprising. I, I was checking out the stats from the uh, the last matchup that we saw from these two teams, and receiving game kind of lacked for the Eagles. A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith, I want to say, didn't even get over 70 yards, the two of them. It was just Miles Sanders that pretty much carried the load. And I want to say the Eagles ended up running the ball 39 times. Of course, that was among all of their backs. But it, it was kind of interesting to to see that the Eagles sort of, you know, elected to run the ball more against Dallas. Yeah, and I think what Dallas needs to do is continue to run the ball as well. Uh, Pollard and Zeke have both shown that, you know, they can do it. Any, any night, any time, any team, they can run the ball uh, among the best. But like you said earlier, Dak's got to stop throwing picks. He's got two interceptions in three of their last four games. And in those three games where he threw the two interceptions, they were all settled by one score. Luckily, they came out with the win in two of those. But if you limit the turnovers, then I think the Cowboys can run away with it. Absolutely. And I also wanted to point out to kind of, you know, bounce off of what both of us just said, Dak is actually at the lowest QBR in his entire career. Of course, the season's not over. But right now, he's at a 54.8, which is, I mean, astronomically bad. And I mean, it, it was a pick last week that led to the Cowboys getting upset by the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. So I really do think Dak has to step up, but the Cowboys also need to do a good job of game planning around Dak's bad play to alleviate the pressure off of him. You got Tony Pollard, you got Zeke, use him. I, I understand that you got CD, and the Cowboys, it, it seems like my entire life, even with Romo, they have always liked to pass. I mean, I, I, I something really has to change here um, with Dak's bad play. Yeah, and, and honestly... Uh, I don't think things are going to change. This Eagles defense is really good. And so because I think that Dak's still going to struggle, uh, I like the Eagles plus five in this matchup. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Dak is um, throwing a lot of picks. The last time these two teams played, the Eagles had three picks. C.J. Garner-Johnson had two. Darius Slay had one. And I I really think we could see a mul another multiple pick game from Dak Prescott. Yeah, uh, I I'm I'm thinking it's likely because yeah he's looked so bad, but um let's get into Packers Dolphins. Uh, Dolphins are the four point favorite. Over unders put it forty nine and a half. And, and I just got a little interesting tidbit for you. Aaron Rodgers has never lost a game on Christmas Day. Ow! Delivering the presents to Packers fans, I see. Oh yeah, and. and you know, maybe that was only two games that he's played on Christmas Day. I didn't have to include that or I would have sounded real <laughs> cool. But one of those games, oh, a five touchdown performance against his son, the Chicago Bears back in 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah, he he has been sunning them his entire career. Heart goes out to Chicago. Yeah, and, and I think that the key for the Packers in this matchup is, is running the ball. Look, Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon can do the heavy lifting. I know Aaron Jones is questionable. Uh, he was limited in practice Wednesday and Thursday. Um, I got a feeling tomorrow he's going to get the full practice. Or Sorry, um, I got a feeling that today he's going to get the full practice, and it, it's going to change a lot of things. So if you know that your running backs can carry the load, let them. Because the Packers have only lost one game that they had over 30 carries uh, by the running backs. Yeah, and that's been a 
reoccurring theme for uh, them all year. I watched a video of a guy breaking down a film on the Packers, and for some reason, they do not like to run the ball at midfield. They'll they'll pass the ball all three downs and end up punting every single time. And the Packers are a very frustrating team because I see the Steelers of like the past two years within them. And you have a Hall of Fame quarterback that is being scrutinized by everybody and their mom. No one's talking about he lost Devontae Adams. No one's talking about he has a a head coach that still thinks that he's, you know, a, a top-tier quarterback, which which he is, but if you have Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon relieve your old ass quarterback, relieve him. But but for some reason they just won't, and I I think they're six and eight because of it. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And like me and Brock have talked about it all season that you know at a lot of points the Packers were in high pressure situations, maybe you know a must win game here or there, and they would have less than twenty carries between the two, and it just didn't make sense to me. Look, I get it. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Most definitely a a top two most skilled quarterback of all time. So yeah, you want to let him throw the ball. But if it's not working, it's not working. You can't win games off of interceptions and incompletions. So if if you don't give the ball to your backs, then, then you're wasting two guys with immense talent. Yeah, uh, exactly. And the thing with that is, is you're, I like the way you put it, immense talent. We're not just talking about like, oh, let's give the serviceable running back a chance. No, this is Aaron fucking Jones. I, I think he I, I think the world of him. I really do. I think he's a lot better than what people think. And the reason people don't put him in like their top fives or top tens is because he's on a team that doesn't run the fucking ball. And I, I don't know, I, going back to what I said earlier, you know, and I know this kind of really isn't talking about the game, but I feel like the pressure should be taken off of Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur should be the one that's, you know, getting scrutinized by their mom and everybody. But I don't know. That's just me. Oh, I definitely agree. But uh, uh, let's talk about the Dolphins a little bit. Um, I, I think their key to victory is Tua's accuracy. And it's hard to rely on so far this season, especially in the last three weeks. Because Tua's completion percentage in the last three weeks are his three lowest of the season. And, and I know that those were three straight road games. We had talked about that last week. But it it's important. And, and, you know, the last time I heard about it, Tua led the league in uncatchable balls. It, it's It looks pretty rough down there. I actually disagree with you here. Um, at least on the, on the key to victory. I, I agree of what you said about Tua, but I disagree on what the key to victory for the Dolphins actually is. He Mostert against the Bills last week, 17 carries, 136 yards. He needs to do that again. It, it's as simple as that. I, I really have nothing else to say. I, I think Raheem Mostert, if he shows up, alleviates some of the pressure off Tua, Tyreek, Siki, Jalen Waddle, all those guys, I feel like it could be an easy win, especially – you know, at home against the Packers. I feel like if Raheem shows up, Packers are done. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I, I do think that the running game is extremely important, but this this team's best three players are the wide receiver one, the quarterback, and the wide receiver two. And so you've got to get those three in sync because if not, yeah, Raheem Moser can run for 145 yards. But if Tua throws for 150 yards, then it's going to mean nothing. Yeah, I, and, and I agree with that. But I, 
Raheem Mostert, I, I don't know. I, I feel like his sole performance against the Bills uh, was the reason that they were able to keep that game so close. 100%. And Tua's performance against the Bills is part of the reason they lost. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing that I wanted to point out about this game, Dolphins are 5-1 and one at home. Packers are 2-5 and five away. And I know... This one's tough because I know we just talked about giving the running backs more of the load of the offense, but Josh Allen, it is Josh Allen. Josh Allen absolutely exposed Miami. I, I, I definitely say run the ball more, but maybe Aaron Rodgers, maybe this is his game to prove that he is still that bad man. Yeah, no, he's he's got all the opportunities in the world to do that. And and we've talked about it multiple times. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers is that guy. We've seen it on multiple occasions, year after year after year. And it, it just, we haven't seen it this year. He hasn't had that takeover ability that makes the best quarterbacks the best, at least this season. And it, it's a huge factor in why they're third in their division right now. Yeah, and um, actually, though, if if the Packers win, Detroit loses to Carolina, which I don't think they will, I want to say the division standings would actually be tied for second there. And that that changes everything. I, I feel like if the Packers can somehow come away with a win against Miami and Carolina beats Detroit, this whole division is flipped over because I'm pretty sure we talked about it last week. Aaron Rodgers and the Packers in the playoffs, I, I know they have struggled, but that team is just different. I If I'm an NFC team, no matter how bad the Packers are, if they're in the playoffs with Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback, I don't want to play them. That's fair, but but I personally just think that the the Packers have a tough route because, yes, the Lions – may lose to the Panthers. And if that does happen, they will be tied. Uh, and the Packers at the moment have the head-to-head over them. But the Packers are playing the Vikings the week after this. And then they finish off the season against the Lions. So they've got to come out and at least win one of these next two, whether it's the Dolphins or the Vikings. And then they have to beat the Lions in Week 18 or the playoffs are dead. And that Week 18 matchup, de- depending on how these rest of the games go, that Week 18 matchup could be historic. Oh, yeah. It, it could be a huge game. And um, obviously, you know, we got to wait and wait and see. But, you know, there's one more game I do want to talk about uh, for the NFL. And you would think that it, it's not the best matchup. And I, I personally would agree with that. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about a little bit with just the Colts situation because I'm not used to seeing a a team that has to go through so many changes throughout a season. So I'll I'll kind of briefly run through it. So Matt Ryan is your opening day starter and you've got Frank Reich at head coach. All right. A few weeks into the season, they're struggling. Matt Ryan gets benched for Sam Ellinger. Sam Ellinger plays like garbage. Frank Reich gets fired. They hire Jeff Saturday, whose only coaching experience is at uh, 
a high school in Georgia for like a year or two. Wow. As the interim head coach. Okay. Jeff Saturday comes in. First order of business. Matt Ryan's the starter again. Matt Ryan comes in. Nothing really happens. And before all of this with Jeff Saturday, your star running back who hasn't really been producing goes down. Okay. He comes back later. And then fast forward to last week, you blow the biggest lead in NFL's regular season and NFL history. But everybody puts the blame on Matt Ryan for putting up 33 points as if 33 points in the first half of an NFL game shouldn't win you the game. (laughs) He gets benched for Nick Foles, and Jonathan Taylor goes out on the first drive in that game. So now you have Nick Foles starting at quarterback, and Jonathan Taylor isn't playing. Matt Ryan's benched, and somehow the Chargers are only a a four-and-a-half-point favorite. Please explain this to me, Luke. I I really don't have the answer. Um, the Colts, I don't know, and and I would even I would even start their troubles as you know further back. Um, you know, Philip Rivers was definitely serviceable. Let led them into a deep playoff run. I'm I believe I, I don't know if it was the divisional round or the AFC Championship game where he got knocked out a couple of years ago, but they. They have decided to not draft a quarterback, and instead they're just picking up, you know, these, like, kind of has-been, you know, legends, but, like, they're, you know, still has-beens. And I just feel like the offense, you know, is constantly changing. It's constantly having to adapt to quarterbacks, and I just feel like this season it's really showing. Yeah. No, it's not good. And, you know, for the Chargers, they seem to have found their guy. And Herbert looks really good. And they've got the weapons back. We talked about it last week. You've got Mike Williams. You've got Eckler. You've got, um, <clears throat> I'm blanking on it, Keenan Allen. And there's no reason this team should be stopped at this point. Like, yeah. Justin Herbert is three, three more games from possibly getting to a 5,000 passing yard season. He only needs, uh, I believe, like, just over 300 in each of these games, which he's already on a 300 um, streak for the last three weeks. So I just, I don't get why anybody would think this game's going to be close. I think Chargers minus four and a half is a huge, huge lock. I completely agree with you there. That That's kind of absurd. Almost, almost egregious even that it's that close, but um. I don't know. I think the the one thing with the Chargers, though, that has really impressed me this year, and I think it, you know, now that everybody's healthy, it makes them even more of a super team, is with Keenan Allen being hurt, and I want to say Mike Williams may have missed a couple games this season, too. You had a lot of different guys um, step up. I, I think Josh Palmer is actually their receiving yard. or Yeah, Joshua Palmer is their receiving yards leader. And then, uh, Grayson, I'm going to need your help on this one. They have that Everett tight end, right? Yeah, Gerald Everett. Yeah, and I want to say he stepped up, too, uh, to fill the void. So they really now, I mean, they have a shit ton of weapons, and I think the Colts are just going to get absolutely murdered in this game. Yeah, I don't really understand how you couldn't, how you could even say that the Colts are going to keep it close because the Colts this week have nothing on the offense to keep up 
with such a high-powered offense on the other side of the ball. I also wanted to mention that uh, the stud corner that the Colts have, Kenny Moore, um, you know, he has built a really, really nice duo with uh, Stephon Gilmore, especially this season. Um, he hasn't practiced this week at all. And, I mean, I know it's only two guys, but I, you would like Kenny Moore to play against a team like the Chargers who have so many receiving weapons. And, you know, with him not practicing this week, if he's out, I, I could see Herbo putting up 350-plus against the Colts. He could he could drop 400. Easy. Dude, I love that take. I, I'm definitely going to be taking the over on Herbert passing yards. <laughs> nice. I think with that, uh, we'll get into some NFL playoff picture. And, you know, things really got shaken up since last week. Um, who do you think was your favorite team that, that really made a push this past week? Ooh, that's a good question. I, hmm, I think the simple answer would be the Jaguars. Just, you know, with them beating the Cowboys in overtime, that was crazy. They showed up against the Jets to prove that they still have that momentum. And really what helps the Jaguars out a lot here, Patriots, oh my God, the way that they lost against the Raiders, horrible. And that just makes it even close, or even closer, I should say. And Jacksonville, they look way better than the Patriots right now. And if somehow um, the Dolphins lose to the Packers, I don't think they will. But if it happens and the Jaguars win um, again next week, I I think they deserve to be in the playoffs, Grayson. So I'm going Jaguars. Yeah. Uh, with that win, uh, I believe their playoff uh, percentage uh, went up to 51%. Um, if they get uh, a, a Patriots loss uh, to the Bengals, which almost seems inevitable, uh, would put the Jags at 8. And if the Dolphins lose to the Packers, that puts the Dolphins at 8-7, and seven, the Jags at 7-8, and eight, and we could see a little bit of change. Um, we totally could. You have a lot of teams that are tied at six and eight too. Uh, the Steelers and Raiders, notable matchup. They actually play each other this week on uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Franco Harris. By the way, um, it, wow. Uh, the Steelers and Raiders game. It, it, it's a pretty big game this week. All you know for two six and eight teams. What do you think? It is because uh, if I'm not wrong, I think the loser of this will end up getting eliminated. Um. I think at least if the Steelers lose, they will. Uh, I'm not too sure how either of them really have a route to make it in. But, um, you know, we'll have to see. And I do think it's an important matchup. Uh, do I think it's a game I want to watch? No, not really. But uh, I know you'll be watching. Oh, for sure. I'm. Everybody in my family is going to be, you know, hanging out. You know, doing their presence or whatever, I'm going to be glued to the television to hopefully watch my team go seven and eight. How exciting! Yeah, I wish I could say the same. <laughs> and, and I do want to update um, everybody on the teams that are eliminated uh, at this point before we kind of run through every single team uh, real quick. So, um, as of um, this week, the three new additions. Uh, were the Rams, Cardinals, and Colts. They've all been eliminated from the playoffs. And uh, prior to that, the Broncos, Bears, and Texans were all eliminated. So um, let's get it started in the AFC. Um, we've got three teams 
uh, clinching the playoffs. So the Bills, Chiefs, and Bengals. Uh, Bills and Bengals have clinched the playoffs. Chiefs have clinched their division. So the Chiefs are pretty much locked in at two. Um, the Bengals have the opportunity to move up to two. Um, but we'll have to see how that one pans out. So those are the top three right now in the AFC. Um, who do you think is maybe going to take that top spot? Because the Bills and Chiefs are tied up at 11 and three. The Bengals are there at 10 and four. How do you think it's going to pan out? Oh, man. Grayson, Grayson, Grayson. You know you know how much it fucking irks me to say it. And I know, I know they only beat the Buccaneers. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think the Cincinnati fucking shitheads are probably going to... I think they'll be the number one seed. Um, they play the Patriots, which is going to be a tough game, but the Chiefs play the Seahawks, which is a tough game. And honestly... Who knows? The the Bears have kept it close with so many teams. They are the best 3 and 11 team ever, I swear. And who knows? Maybe we could see an upset against Buffalo. And if that happens, then that really really gives Cincinnati obviously a good chance cuz all the records will be tied. But I mean, bottom line, Cincinnati just has all the momentum in the world right now and I think they have more momentum than the Bills and the Chiefs do. I love it. I hey. I've been I've been <laughs> preaching the Bengals ever since they came off of the losing streak and in the early struggles this year, I, I said it. I had Bengals 49ers in my Super Bowl. And at the time when I said that, I, I believe both of them were 7-4 and four maybe. Um, could have been even earlier than that. And now both of those teams are 10-4, and four and it's looking pretty good. Um, yeah, and one more comment that I want to make, though, because I always have to say something negative about the Bengals. Uh, Baltimore plays Atlanta. Bengals, as I just mentioned, play New England. New England needs to be a very hungry team. I don't know if they are, especially after that Raiders game, but they need to be a hungry team. The Patriots win. The Ravens win. And I, I actually will take back what I said. Even though the Bengals have only lost one game, they've still clinched the playoffs, I do not think they will get the number one seed anymore. And I think that a loss against the Patriots will completely derail the team in, in the sense of getting the first seed. They will still make the playoffs and they will still be a good team, but I feel like that kind of first seed mentality, that you know top dog mentality will be kind of derailed. Yeah, I think it could. Um the Patriots are definitely hungry, like we were just talking about. Like they're the next team in, so I wouldn't be surprised if you know maybe the Patriots do put up a fight and the Bengals stumble. Uh, the Ravens have a good chance to beat the Falcons, but it's still going to be Tyler Huntley. Lamar Jackson's already ruled out for the Ravens this weekend, and I think that's the difference maker. Yeah, and you know. Obviously, the they have been hurt without Lamar, but Huntley, he, he has proven time and time again to be more than serviceable, in my opinion. Fair. That, yeah, that is 100% fair. Um, it, it's not a QB matchup I'm looking forward to in that Baltimore Falcons game, though. Um, I don't think anybody thought that at any point in this season we'd be watching Tyler Huntley face off with Desmond Ritter and both of these teams be in a 
even in contention for a playoff spot. <laughs> yeah, and real quick, I, I actually wanted to ask you. Um, but I, I know you, your hot take last week was about Desmond Ritter, um, I, and I wanted to know if your hot take still stands, and I, I kind of just want to get your opinion on how you thought Desmond Ritter and the Falcons did. The hot take doesn't stand. <laughs> it, it's bad. I'm in shambles. Uh, Atlanta's in shambles. Desmond Ritter, uh, I can't be that mad. It, it's his first game in the NFL. Like, I, I can't put him at that at, at fault. You know, he didn't throw a pick. That That's the bright side. He didn't throw a pick. Maybe he didn't even get 100 in passing yards. Didn't throw a pick, but also played like absolute dog shit uh, against the Saints of all people. And, and that just irks me so badly. Yeah, and, and I, I want to say that I may have mentioned this last week, but um, I, I understand I, I, if it's... If I'm right in saying this, I want to say that the Falcons kind of pushed for Mariota to get this surgery. I don't. I don't think it was really his choice. Um, and on top of that, I, I don't. I don't like that decision, man. I. I think Mariota, or as I've been calling him, Marigota, really, really underrated for the Falcons this year. Um, I. I expected the Falcons to be one of the worst teams in the NFL, but they have competed in a lot of in a ton of games this year, and I. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with Marigota. It does. Look, he's a he's a a veteran at this point, um, a, a solid quarterback option. I think what deterred Falcons fans from being ready to really hop on the train is that we know he's not going to be here in the coming years. We know he's not the option uh, for the future because he's been this exact same player in all in the other two cities he's played in in, in Tennessee. He got drafted there, and by, like, year three, they knew he wasn't the guy. They pick up Tannehill. Goes to Oakland. And immediately is the backup to Derek Carr. And just kind of sits around, gets a couple starts with an injury to Derek Carr, and then it's over there. It comes to Atlanta knowing that he's going to have a starting spot. And... I think he realized that he had a shelf life here and I think it deterred, like I said, it deterred Falcons fans from cheering for him. But, but I'll say, yeah, Marcus Mariota had a a good season from what I was expecting from him and what I, what I was expecting from the Falcons. I think what screwed us over the Kyle Pitts injury sucked and just how inconsistent the defense is. I, and I, you know, I know we need to get off the topic of Mariota, but I, I really wanted to bring this up too. Um, Falcons lost Matt Ryan this year. And growing up in Georgia, of course, I'm not a Falcons fan, but I don't have a problem with the Falcons. Matt Ryan is a legitimate fucking icon here. And I, I don't think the rest of the NFL really understands that. He's not a Tom Brady where he gets the media attention across the country. But in Atlanta, this guy's a fucking superhero, Matt Ryan was. And I feel like the way that the Falcons organization handled him didn't get Deshaun Watson, but ended up losing, you know, their legend on the down on the decline of his career, but a still legend, celebrity, superstar quarterback. Mariota was always destined to not be cheered for. Yeah, exactly. It, it's for like I'll, I'll defend Matt Ryan's legacy to the grave. I think he should be a Hall of Famer. The guy is like, 
I believe he's top 10 in passing yards uh, all time. Like he he's a, a completion percentage guy. Him and Julio Jones were one of the best duos in the in the league for for years. Like as an Atlanta Falcons fan for my entire life, and I will continue to be. Matt Ryan is the guy. Yeah, and uh, you know, as I stated previously. I'm not a Falcons fan, but I can say that I grew up in the Matt Ryan Julio era, and man, was it fun. All right. Well, I want to get off this topic, so let, let's continue. Um, so Titans, uh, they're leading their division at the moment at 7-7. Seven and seven. It, it looks like nobody's catching up to them. Um, they really just need to clinch their spot, and, and it's over. But Jacksonville is now... If the Titans lose to the Texans, which probably won't happen, um, Jacksonville would, I, I believe, tie. Um, and, and I don't know who has the tiebreaker at the moment. Let's see. So it would probably come down to Week 18. So the Jags have the tiebreaker right now. Um, if they could beat the Titans in Week 18, I think the Jags make it in. Um, I don't think they're really primed for a run if they if the Jags do make it in, but uh, I don't think the Titans are either. Um, they look very incomplete. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. I, I don't really have much to say on this topic other than the fact it would it would just simply be more interesting to see Jacksonville in the playoffs with how hot they are right now. The Titans have been meh all season long, and what really surprises me about the Titans is um, they're seven and seven. They have benched Tannehill numerous times this year, I feel like, which is kind of strange for them to be first in their division, and they have had, you know, a couple games where they've actually benched their starting quarterback. So kind of goes to show how, you know, mid that division really is this year. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. Is I, I feel like if the Titans make it, they won't go far. If the Jags make it, it'll be more entertaining, but they might not go far either. But the Jags have way more of a chance of, like, you know, winning a – you know the Jags are a, a trap team right now. They won the trap game against uh, the Cowboys, and I feel like maybe the Jags, with how hot they are, they could be kind of a threat in the playoffs. Who knows? Yeah, and, and like the Jags have the Texans next week, so um, obviously I'm not going to write off the Texans and say that you know it's an automatic win, but it, it's favorable for the Jags, and then it's the Titans. So um, if they can come out next week, play their game. You know, then I, I really do think that that week 18 matchup is going to decide who's in it for. And, and the other team is most likely going to be out because the next three teams are the Ravens at nine and five, the Chargers at eight and six, and the Dolphins at eight and six. And I don't think that the Chargers or Dolphins uh, are, are going to lose out. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Sure. So. We already kind of talked about the Ravens. Um, th they've got a pretty good chance to make it in as long as uh, they can pick up one win uh, in these last uh, three games. The Falcons one looks like the win that they would need. Uh, once you get 10 wins, uh, it it's almost locked up uh, with these 17-game seasons. So one more win for the Ravens. Uh, they're most likely in. And then with the Chargers, I, I want them to make it in. 
they're a fun team to watch, especially on the offensive side. And then when Derwin James is healthy, that defense is great to watch as well. They've got very uh, explosive players on that defense. I think um, what what's really interesting for the uh, LA Chargers is I I I just am yearning to see Justin Herbert play in the playoffs because. I don't know. Growing up, <clears throat> I was always kind of taught that you know, the playoff playoff times are different for especially quarterbacks. Different for the whole team, but especially quarterbacks. And I would really like to see how um, Herbo, you know, with how well he's developed, I want to see him do well in the playoffs now. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, we keep um, talking about how well he's doing and, and how much he's progressing uh, in, in these past years, and. It's finally time to see what he can do when it's win or go home. And it's going to be huge if they make the playoffs just for this entire team because they've got a future ahead of them. And if they can continue to draft well, I got a feeling that they're truly going to be a force to be reckoned with within the next three to four years. Yeah, and and it's their time. I I have always said this about the Chargers is they are they have been probably one of the most frustrating teams to be a fan of. I mean, at one point, at Philip Rivers, granted he was on the decline, but you know he was still with his team, still doing a very good job. Had Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, who were both younger, uh, Antonio Gates. Austin Eckler and Melvin Gordon all on the same team. And I want to say during those years is they were, you know, a below 500 team um, through a lot of those points. And now it's just good to see it, you know, finally all coming together, get together for them. Yeah. No, I like seeing the chargers play. Well, uh, it's something that we're not quite accustomed to um, really at all, but um, the next team, the dolphins, Look, I don't really know what to read on the Dolphins. Like, we talked about their matchup with the Packers this coming weekend, but I really can't decide if they are a complete team. If they're not, like, every game is different for them. Yeah, um, I, I really can't disagree with you there. They are eight and six, but they're one of those teams where it, they don't really feel like they're eight and six yet. They obviously have loaded talent, but there are just some games, and, you know, it's this season, it's been last season too. They just simply don't come together. And, you know, it, the playoffs, you have to be together the whole time. You have to win multiple games in a row. And for the Dolphins, with where they're sitting at now, it might be, a you know, multiple away games in a row. And I just, you know, if they make the playoffs, I, I could easily see them going out first round in just some fluke game where it just happens to be, you know, one of the games where their team doesn't play well. Yeah. And then uh, the team's kind of on the bubble. Uh, the Patriots, which we've talked about, Jags, which we've talked about. Uh, I, I think that out of these teams that are left, uh, I, I don't think the Jets have a chance uh, of getting in uh, just with you know all of the problems they're facing. Uh, the Raiders, I, I don't really think have a chance either. Uh, I know that if they win this weekend, it'd put them at 7-8, and eight, but I just don't think they have what it takes to really win the games they need to, especially in the last two weeks of the season. And then Browns are a no. I really think that Deshaun needs more time. Uh, he needs an offseason with the team. And this is kind of you know the, the precursor to what can be. So if the Browns 
you know, if, if Deshaun wants to show up next week and in and, and across these next three weeks, then yeah, they can make it in. I just don't see that happening. Yeah. Um, Sean, you know, it, it's good that he's back and it's good that he's finally playing with this team. He's getting reps in. For the Browns, though, I, I would just chalk it up as a rebuild year. You know, you're you're seeing how Deshaun can play. He hasn't really been lighting it up like, you know, the Browns probably expected him to. Of course, you know, he's coming off of a crazy suspension. But, um, yeah, I, I just don't think Deshaun Watson has really come back and played well enough for the Browns to be to be in the playoffs this year. Yeah, 100%. And uh, let's talk about the NFC. So um, three teams clinched their spot this week. So the Eagles had already clinched prior. Um, the Vikings clinched the division, the 49ers clinched their division, and the Cowboys have clinched playoff berth. Um, but with how the Eagles are playing, it, it doesn't look like the Cowboys will get above the five seed. So I, I think what is interesting to look at here is how can things move around at the top? If the Eagles are missing Jalen Hurts for the next two, three weeks, maybe, it completely throws a wrench in what we've all been looking forward to this season, which is Jalen Hurts in the playoffs, the number one seed, like what is going to happen. And so I got a feeling that this Jalen Hurts injury won't be too serious. And come playoff time, uh, I got a feeling Jalen Hurts that no matter what happens, he's going to play. Um, So I don't think too much is going to change here, but uh, I'm interested to see what you think. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with you on the Eagles. Is I do not think that with Jalen Hurts being out, I, I could still see them winning a couple of games. Um, you know, left in the regular season, and the Vikings, you know, they've been kind of a shaky team this year. Um, they are eleven and three, but you know, those three losses, you know, are kind of painful, especially the one against the Cowboys. I could see the Vikings dropping one or two of their um, next regular season games. Yeah, I think the Eagles will still clinch the top spot even without Jalen Hurts based on the fact that I don't think the Vikings will win out. Yeah, and you know, with that, do you think that the 49ers maybe jump up to two if the Vikings don't win out? Um, you know, do the 49ers have what it takes to win these next three games, put themselves at 13 and four and in a, a great position to advance into the playoffs. I do. I, and I think, um, you know, the past couple of weeks, just watching the 49ers, their, their defense, and especially that man, Brock, if Brock keeps playing the way that he's been playing, I think the 49ers are my favorites to win the Super Bowl. Um, but will they jump the Vikings? I'm going to go bold here. I don't know. It's tough because I, we haven't seen, en seen enough of Purdy, I think, to really make a strong case for them to jump the Vikings, in, in my opinion, at least. Because you just. So you think. So you, do you think that the Vikings are going to win out? Because I think if the Vikings don't win out, the 49ers are going to take it from them. It's tough to say. I, I think they could both end up dropping an even amount of games. Fair. So the 49ers remaining schedule is is uh, Washington on Saturday, and then they've got Raiders Cardinals. I, I think they're in a great position to win out and put themselves in a, a, a good spot. Whereas the Vikings are looking at some, some high pressure situations as they continue. We already talked about they're playing the Giants this week. 
And then you've got the Packers, which it's never easy. The Packers are never an easy team to play, especially a division game late in the season. And then you've got the Bears in week 18, and we'll kind of see you know, what that means because the Bears are already eliminated. But maybe the Hungry Dog's going to come out uh, week 18 and, and shake some things up. So, you know, do you think that the Vikings can even take two games out of this drop uh, last three? I, I mm, another tough question, man. I, I don't know. And the only reason that I'm so stuck is, is just the point that I made earlier is the Vikings are just such a shaky team. And I... I don't really see them performing that well under pressure minus the bills game uh, in the regular season and minus the Colts game. But I think, I think those divisional games at the end are going to be a lot tougher than they should be for the Vikings. That, that's kind of my hot take. I think. Gotcha. And so we'll, we'll move down to the teams that haven't quite clinched, um, but are looking at a good position. So <clears throat> the giants, at eight, five, and one are the sixth seed at the moment. Um, the commanders at seven, six, and one are the seventh seed. But you've got some guys on your tail that have the opportunity. The Seahawks, obviously, they've got a tough one this week with the Chiefs. So, say the Seahawks end up at maybe nine, nine and eight. Do you think that either the Giants or Washington? could still end up edging them out because of that tie they've got. Washington's only got to take two of these games and they'll have a better record than the Seahawks. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Um, the Seahawks definitely, I feel like with the way they played the season and all the adversity that they have faced, I, I think the Seahawks definitely deserve to be in the playoffs, but also make a case for the lions as well. Um, it's tough because the Giants and Commanders are are two teams right now. The Giants look a little bit better than the Commanders, but I don't know. I, I definitely think that um, the Commanders at the seventh spot will definitely be replaced by either Seattle or Detroit. Interesting. Yeah, I do think that Washington will probably pick up the loss this coming week against the 49ers, so that'll put them at 7-7-1. Seven, seven and one. Um, But at the same time, the Seahawks could most definitely lose this week against the Chiefs, but the Lions, like you said, uh, the Lions have a good opportunity to win against Carolina, um, which would put them at eight and seven, put them in that spot, and the Giants would only be a, a tie ahead of the Lions at that point uh, for even the sixth seed. Yeah. Um... And the Lions are hungry, and they are fun to watch. They are fun to watch. I, I don't know. It's a toss-up between who I want to make it in the playoffs. Now I feel like it, it. Seattle, same boat as the Lions, except for Seattle has faced a lot more adversity. I don't know. I, I would definitely like to see one of those teams make it in the playoffs, though. Hundred percent. Awesome. And, and I didn't mention the Buccaneers yet, uh, fully, because. They're in the weirdest situation possible. So <laughs> right now they're lined up for the four seed at six and eight. Well, the Panthers are five and nine. The Saints are five and nine. And the Falcons are five and nine. This entire division is a toss-up. Because we, we don't know that the Bucks are going to play well for the remainder of these games. 
Yeah, they've got um, a little bit of a, a relaxed one against the Cardinals, who still won't have Kyler, I believe. And I think that's really going to throw things off for him. Um, obviously, the Cardinals game is probably a wash, but you've got two divisional games to end the season, and you've got the Panthers and the Falcons. Both of these teams have the opportunity to win this week. Uh, I, I feel like the Falcons may be more than the Panthers, but you could see this entire division coming down to the final week of the season. It'll be really entertaining, and it has not gotten enough media attention, in my opinion. Of course, I, I understand every team is below 500. But Buccaneers look like straight doo-doo right now. And granted, so does the rest of the division. Maybe a little bit less with the Saints coming off of a really important win against Atlanta. But the I The Buccaneers definitely don't deserve to be in the playoffs. I, it's really going to come down to who gets hot in these last couple games, I feel like. And I do not think it'll be the Buccaneers. I like it. So, so who do you think is going to come out of the NFC South? I think it will be the Falcons. I, I really oh, do. I, interesting. I, uh, Mariota, is his surgery... Is it season ending? Yes. Hmm. That shakes things up just a little bit. Okay, if it's not the Falcons, I I think the Saints will run the table then, and they'll win the win the division. That's my take. I honestly, yeah, I I agree. I think that they're probably in the best position to do it. Um, they've got you know Andy Dalton, whatever. Um, I, I hate watching him play. But, you know, he's a veteran quarterback. He can make plays when you need to. Whatever needs to happen, Andy Dalton can do it, just not at the highest level. And you've got guys on that team that can make a difference. Alvin Kamara can be the top running back in the league. He just hasn't been this season. Chris Olave looks amazing in his rookie season. Obviously, uh, you're missing Michael Thomas. Jarvis Landry has not done much since he's come back from injury. So the sources of offense there are going to be a little bit difficult to find. But when it comes down to all four of these teams, I don't think the Panthers really have what it takes to win these clutch moments. And I think that the Saints and the Bucks are really the only ones I could see making it. I don't think Ritter is going to lead us into a playoff spot. Yeah, and and I agree with you. And I also want to mention I, the Lions, I think, are definitely going to be beat the Panthers just off of the sheer hunger factor is, you know, the head coach they have over there in Detroit, man. Uh, the the mentality that he instills in his players is just something to be admired. And I don't know. I definitely think the Lions will beat the Panthers and I'll pretty much, I think, send the Panthers kind of crashing out. It's really going to come down to what the Saints and the Falcons can do. And I feel like the Saints are in a better position to make that run. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us with the playoff conversation. Um, and now, you know, we're three weeks away from the end of the season. Uh, things are kind of starting to wrap up. So I wanted to get our takes on the top 10 rookies this season. And uh, Luke, I want you to start with your number 10. Oh, man. I was very excited for this segment. Um, I want to start off by saying I, I was looking at other um, top rookie lists of this season just to kind of like an idea of who was out there and, you know, just what the other, you know, media companies were saying, like CBS, Fox, just all those guys. And I can say that I disagreed with every single one of them. <laughs> uh, just off of the games that I've watched this year, I, I just couldn't, couldn't get behind with what the other guys were saying. So I will go ahead and start. <clears throat> Number 10, I like Kavon Thibodeau. 
the Giants guy. He and and kind of when I was making this list, I thought that he may have been a little bit too low. That guy looks he's an athlete. He is a complete football player and the Giants drafted I mean, they're very lucky to have him on the team. So I, I like Thibodeau a lot. Um, number nine, uh, Damon Pierce. He, he's at number nine because he, you know, obviously got hurt. And towards the end of the season, I don't, you know, I feel like he kind of pooped out a little bit. Um, Garrett Wilson at number eight. And this was. Whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Listen no, to me no, here. No, yes. You're not getting away with this one. I'm getting away with this one. <laughs> he. He has had some really, really awful games this year. Yeah, he's been a statement for that Jets offense, and he's definitely the number one guy. But he's had some games, you know, where he just hasn't really performed, and obviously a lot of that I feel like has to do when Zach Wilson took over for Flacco. He was way better with Flacco at quarterback, and I feel like if they continued with that or even continued with Mike White, Garrett Wilson would be much higher on my list. Number seven, Salave. I, I think he's been at least more effective to his team than Garrett Wilson has. Uh, Alave has really stepped up this year for the Saints. Uh, number six, Aiden Hutchinson. He leads rookies in sacks right now, I believe. He also has two interceptions. Um, so, you know, very good performance from him. Uh, Lions got an absolute stud there. Um, let's see here. <laughs> you know what I just realized, Grayson? Yeah, my list. I have Garrett Wilson twice. Way to go! So he's at number five as well. Um, let me skip number five because number four is actually a super exciting player. I really want to talk about this guy, and a lot of people think that maybe he should be over a certain guy. But you know, Grace and I will get into that later. I'm really interested to hear his opinion on it. Uh, Tariq Woolen, Seahawks corner. He's been. Absolutely lighting it up. I'm pretty sure he has six picks this year, one uh, one pick six. He's been absolutely amazing. Number three, the other Seahawks rookie, Kenneth Walker. Absolute stud. Absolute stud. And just ask my fantasy team. I mean, he he came in for uh, Chris Carson, who got hurt earlier in the year. And I I feel like uh, Kenneth Walker's performance is a good, a pretty damn good reason why the Seahawks are 7-7 seven and seven right now. You lose your star running back. You know, it. Your Geno Smith is your quarterback. What the hell is going to go on? Not to worry. Kenneth Walker takes over, and he has your team at 500 right now. Number two, Christian Watson. Obviously, I mean, I, I don't really have to say much about this guy. He just scores touchdowns like no one's fucking business. I'm pretty sure he does. He lead the league in uh, receiving touchdowns this year. Uh, I believe he leads rookies. I, I know he has more than, you know, guys like Justin Jefferson and other studs around the league, which is super impressive for a rookie to have, especially on a dormant offense where the quarterback is, you know, under nothing but scrutiny lately. I obviously, I, I my number one, I haven't said him yet, so I feel like everybody kind of already knows it, Sauce Gardner. I mean, not a lot of rookie corners are being tasked with shadowing the number one wide receivers in the league, you know, all across different teams. Sauce Gardner has been that guy. He may not have as many picks as Tariq Woolen, but, you know, that's also kind of a testament to how good of a corner he is. He's probably covering the guy so well that he's not even getting chances to pick the ball off. So there's my top 10. Wow. Okay. That's – there's a couple things I disagree with, but we can argue it after we get our list. So, all right, number 10. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I, I went for – I, I forgot about my honorable mentions. Oh, Please. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So my first honorable mention, Tyler Linderbaum. Uh, 
he's the Ravens center. He has been absolutely amazing. I want to say they have like a 93% um, success rate on running the ball behind him, or maybe that was like his pass block stat. Really, really solid center out of Iowa there for Baltimore. Uh, number two, George Pickens may not have, you know, the receptions or the yards or really even the touchdowns, but the dude is a human highlight reel. He, you know, is very good in the 50-50 balls. He's he's a dog, <laughs> mean as hell, and he definitely belongs in that division. So George Pickens was, you know, had to be one of my honorable mentions. Um, Jalen uh, Petrie, the safety on the Texans, he actually uh, leads the league in non-linebacker tackles. So, you know, out of everybody that's in the league, he has the most tackles in the league without being a linebacker. He's only a rookie this year. I thought that was kind of, you know, impressive and, you know, worthy to note. And then uh, Drake London was my last honorable mention. He doesn't really have the greatest stats this year, but I feel like he has really established himself as a pretty important part of the Falcons offense, especially with losing Kyle Pitts. And I, I think he's been a stud. Yeah, no, I, I like some of those. I, I think Drake London has played really well, but I agree with you. He he doesn't b- belong in the top 10. Uh, maybe for offense he would, but otherwise, no. Um, so I'll go ahead, uh, get into my number 10. So I, I took a little bit of a homer pick. Uh, I put Tyler Algier at 10. And I know it may not look like it should be this way, but he's shown a lot of promise, and especially not being the primary running back. So Cordell Patterson's been the starting running back. He missed a couple of weeks, and in those weeks, Tyler Algier got the primary carries and really showed out. And with 743 yards without being the primary running back, that's extremely impressive. So I think Tyler Algier has showed that he can be the number one running back in Atlanta uh, when whenever Cordero's time you know is kind of up as the starter. And then at number nine, I put Brock Purdy. Ow. And I think that, honestly, he could be higher, but I need more than three games. Um, what he's done so far, though, is phenomenal. Six touchdowns, only one interception in those three starts, and in those three starts, a 69% completion percentage. These are extremely impressive numbers. He, he's 3-0 and as a starting quarterback. Like, he's shown that he's got composure. He can wait and let a play develop in front of him he can hit anybody on the field he can chuck it downfield if he needs to he can drop it off in the flat to christian mccaffrey if he needs to like he's a very good all-around quarterback when it comes to just being a passer and letting the offense flow throughout everything that you do on the field I like that one and then at number eight i've got jaquan brisker a couple of points for him. Uh, opposing completion percentage for quarterbacks targeting him is only a 56.8%. And then the thing that really jumps off the board to me, 286 passing yards allowed on 37 targets is phenomenal for a, a rookie that wasn't drafted all that high and really didn't have all of the eyes on him. He's got 78 tackles, five tackles for loss, three QB hits, three sacks, one interception. And honestly, he looks like a a, a top safety in the league. Yeah, I I think he, 
Sorry, I, I just wanted to point out that I, I completely forgot about him when I was making this list. He, he's been a stud in Chicago, for sure. They definitely got a good one there. And, you know, he has Eddie Jackson to learn from across from him. I mean, if those are the two safeties that Chicago has, they're, they're pretty good at safety. Very underrated, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then coming in at, um, at seven, I've got Christian Watson. And the only reason he's so low is that he didn't produce shit <laughs> until that streak. So he started off two receptions, 34 yards, three receptions, nine yards, one reception, eight yards, one reception, one yard, one reception, 12 yards, two receptions, 24, and then all hell broke loose for him. Four for 107, three touchdowns. Four for 48, two touchdowns. Four for 110 with one touchdown. Three for 48 with one touchdown. That's all seven of his touchdowns from this season in four games. And three of them in one game is outstanding for a rookie wide receiver. So Christian Watson makes it up at that point on the list for that. But I don't think he can go any higher just because outside of those games where he was putting up the touchdowns, he wasn't really doing much that jumped off the paper for me. I think where we where we differed in making our list. Sorry if I if I can comment as you go. Oh, feel free. Um, I kind of didn't really base mine off of stats. I kind of went the route of how they affected their team immediately. And you know that's that's one thing you know that's very hard for rookies is they're obviously adjusting to you know now playing pro football. And I, I don't know, I feel like that's it's a little bit more impressive to make an impact rather than just have nice stats. And I think Christian Watson's, you know, like kind of um, second half of the season performance, I, I think he's a lot of the reason that the, the Packers are where they are right now. So that's why I put him at two, because um, I, I feel like he's a, the main reason why they have turned uh, their season around and they're kind of knocking on the door there. But I'm, I'm interested to see what you got next. Yeah, so next um, at the – sorry, I didn't number these for some reason. At the sixth spot, I've got Kenneth Walker. And I only have him at six because he's he, he started off slow and then kind of cooled off as well. But he is the best running back in this class uh, for multiple weeks getting starting running back carries. It's very impressive. In the first three weeks, he had over 20 carries. Or Sorry, not in the first three weeks. In the three weeks that he had over 20 carries, he had 97 with a touchdown, 109 with two touchdowns, and 167 with two touchdowns. So if you put the ball in his hands, he's going to get it done for you. It's just that here and there, uh, he wasn't getting the carries he needed or you know maybe the carries were going elsewhere, and it just didn't reflect on the stat sheet and I think that's really the only thing that docked him. He he looks extremely impressive, and I think he is truly a running back of the future for the Seahawks. But I need to see a little bit more in the games where they're not giving him that many opportunities. He's really got to show out, even if he's not in favor in that day. I like that take. And then at five, I've got Chris Olave. Um, he kind of snuck under the radar of some people because his team is awful. But he's had a great season. The drops are a little bit of a problem, a 4.9% drop rate. But 
three weeks over 100 yards, and he's kind of had to be the wide receiver one because Jarvis Landry's been hurt, and since he's come back, he's been useless. And Michael Thomas has, of course, been hurt because that's all he knows how to do other than run a slant route. (laughs) So Olave really has impressed. And I think that, you know, coming in at the top five on on a rookie list for Chris Olave is a huge accomplishment because people saw that, you know, he doesn't have a great quarterback situation. He would theoretically be the third option on this team behind Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry. But he's come in and, and he showed out in multiple occasions. So yeah, Chris Olave comes in at five. Uh, it it kind of makes you wonder where um, Michael Thomas's future lies within this team. And I, I don't think a lot of people are talking about that, but Michael Thomas, he, he was good when he was playing this year. Um, I think he had uh, two touchdowns against the Buccaneers. That, that was the, the meme of him looking like a fucking heroin addict on the sideline there, but um, you know, he Michael Thomas is definitely a solid player, but I, I'm sure he gets paid a lot of money to be hurt, and it kind of makes you wonder if Chris Olave kind of shakes up Michael Thomas's future with the Saints. Oh, I think for, for sure he does. But uh, we'll move into my top four. So number four, I've got Hayden, Aiden Hutchinson, and, and he's just simply a beast. He is unstoppable. 40 tackles, 7 tackles for loss, 13 QB hits, 7 sacks as a rookie, and 2 interceptions as a defensive end? That's ridiculous. And he's making it so clear to the entire league. He has put every single other team on the in the NFL on notice that he is a force to be reckoned with for years and years to come. Yeah, um, I, I think a huge play for him, too. He, he's a Lions player, a Lions rookie, might I add, that, that picked off Aaron Rodgers. A game where I, I want to say the Packers lost, and I don't know, Aiden Hutchinson definitely looks like he could, you know, be a force to re- be reckoned with in this league for sure. Yeah, and then uh, coming in at number three, uh, I've got Tariq Woolen. Uh, he's an interception machine. A-, a rookie having six interceptions is fantastic. And then on top of that, thirteen passes defended, fifty-one tackles. And the stat that really jumps out to me is a 53.5 QBR when quarterbacks are targeting Tariq Woolen. Man. That is insane for a rookie. The interceptions is ridiculous. One for a pick six. He, he's been crazy this year. Yeah, and, and like there, there's so much more we can talk about with Tariq Woolen because he does more than just stop plays because he intimidates. He should... As a rookie, you'd think they'd be targeting much more. But no, he's instilling fear in offensive game plans, and it's working out 100%. And then at number two, I've got Garrett Wilson. So that's why I felt so disrespected by you putting him at eight, right? Yes. So five after my list whenever I wrote it. Like, I guess. (laughs) But... (laughs) After this game that we just watched, he is at 71 receptions for 996 yards, only four touchdowns, but I think that's a QB problem because he's getting them down the field. It it reflects in the stats, but if you have an inconsistent quarterback situation, it's pretty tough to work on red zone efficiency. So I can't fault him for only having four touchdowns, but through... You know, especially this week, 
he's clearly differentiated himself from the rest of this rookie wide receiver class because this was a class that people talked about a lot. You had Garrett Wilson, you had Chris Olave, you had Drake London and Christian Watson, and, and there was numerous other guys coming out that were that, that definitely had a spotlight on them. And, and Garrett Wilson easily separated himself from the rest. I, I like that take. He, he, you know, he's definitely been a stud. I, I just think I had him so low, only because, and maybe this isn't a good, you know, way to base it off of. But I, I think the Jets still would have been a very good team this year without him. And that, that's just kind of where I go. It, it, he's obviously been a sick performer for them, but I, I don't think he is a difference maker. And I know that's kind of a hot take, but. I, I don't think he has that difference-making ability yet, but he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in this league for sure, for a long time. I would 100% disagree with you saying that he's not a difference-maker because I think he is. Look, if they were just relying on Corey Davis, they'd drop like 50% of the passes. Garrett Wilson ha- has a great catch rate. He creates offense. He occupies your number one defender at all times. Like he is truly a threat and and maybe you don't see that he's a difference maker because the ball doesn't go to him always. But when the number one cornerback on the opposing team is guarding him at all times, of course you kind of want to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I just, you know, to, to go off of what I said earlier, whenever I ranked him at eight, not five. Um, yeah. Um, I don't like the fact that he still didn't perform with Zach Wilson and I understand it. The the quarterback situation in, you know, New York is fucking awful. I, I for me to put him higher, he would have had to perform with Zach Wilson as well. Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um and, and you know, I'm a gambling odds kind of guy. I look at uh, that's kind of how I see it because you know, uh, I'm a firm believer that Vegas knows more than we do. Oh yeah. And when I saw Garrett Wilson at minus 250 as the favorite and Kenneth Walker in second at plus 700. I immediately was like, Garrett Wilson is 100% the best offensive rookie this season. Wow. Really? Yep. We're not even at the stake, stake or claim part, Grayson. That, that is, Oh, this, this ain't even hot. (laughs) Nah, dude, this is this is a hot take to me. I I think Kenneth Walker just all around effectiveness, and and of course Kenneth Walker is a running back too. He can be effective in the run game and the pass game. Garrett Wilson's obviously just kind of limited to wide receiver. I I think the Seahawks are nowhere without Kenneth Walker, and I don't know. I I think that's kind of egregious, but I see your argument for it. I definitely I I get where you're coming from. All right, and now number one which I insisted before we recorded that we agreed on this, and we did. Sauce Gardner, easy. Oh, yeah. Look, his basic stats aren't going to jump off the page because nobody wants to throw to him. 317 yards allowed on on 68 targets, but he's causing a 52.9% completion percentage for quarterbacks targeting him. And there was a game this season against the Lions where they didn't target him once. And that is why he's the best rookie this year. If you, as a a guy who at that point had played, I I believe, 12, 13 games in the NFL, you came out of a group of five school at Cincinnati. And by that point in the season, people don't want to throw at you. That means that they're running an entire offensive game plan 
that avoids whatever you're doing on the field. And that is unrivaled for any rookie. He, um, in recent years, and, and honestly, I would go as far, as far as to say, like in my entire life of being a football fan, I've never seen a rookie be so immediately effective. And especially like he's not a quarterback. He's not a running back. Not a linebacker. He's none of like your kind of top positions. He's a cornerback. And cornerbacks, I would say it's one of the toughest positions in football, for sure, to be a cornerback, to keep up with elite athletes where you really don't even know what route they're running, but you have to shut them down. And Sauce has not only done that, but done it against the top, like the top of the top in this league. And it's just it's uber impressive. He'll he'll be around for a very long time, and I I think he'll end up being better than Deion Sanders at the end of his career. And that I don't. Wow. That's not a hot. Take. I love that. Not a hot take. No, I love that. Yeah. No, that's just that's just that's a straight fact. Yeah, for sure. But like, as as rookies go, the last time I was very impressed by a rookie corner was Jalen Ramsey, and that's not just my Florida State bias, but also that Jalen Ramsey has also panned out to be a great player. So, the fact that even as a rookie, you can put him on the same level as Jalen Ramsey, who. Sauce Gardner's had a better year than uh, as of this year, but like, and like, there's even more numbers that just keep backing him up. He leads the league, not rookies, the league in passes defended. Unbelievable. (laughs) And and so yeah, he he's got to be number one because your favorite quarterback on your favorite team, yeah, that guy that won you an MVP and, and your your top wide receiver that's an all pro, he's getting lost in the sauce <laughs> for every single year for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, no, it, Sauce is going to have a super long career with, I think, many, well, maybe not many because you, you can really never predict Super Bowls, especially with, you know, a rebuilding team like the Jets. But, and he. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not far-fetched for him to be the best corner of all time. He's definitely the best corner, in my opinion, this season, which is already impressive as it is. If he keeps it up and stays healthy, sky's the limit for this dude. Oh, 100%. Yeah, like, Sauce Gardner is... At some point, like, they're going to have to just stop throwing at him completely. Every single team. It's unbelievable what he's been able to do this season. I, I can't wait to see. And, and we haven't even mentioned this, Grayson. He, he's still a rookie. Just wait until his mind gets more adjusted to what he's seeing out there. Oh, my fucking God. I, like, you're right. I, I could literally see him just never getting targeted for, like, weeks in a row. It's going to be insane. I, I cannot wait to see what this guy does. Like, let's say year four his career. Uh, I could see him having a, a bookshelf, a, a trophy case full of defensive player of the years. Oh, for sure. But uh, yeah, we're, we're going to move on. Um, I, I don't think there's much more arguing to be had. Um, we, we talked enough about our gripes with each other's list throughout. We will get into the MLB news that's happened and uh, we'll go through a couple of these signings and there's two big news stories I want to talk about. So uh, Adam Ottavino re-signs with the Mets on a two-year deal. Uh, that's big for the Mets. Um, I, I don't think he's too much of a difference maker, but Adam Ottavino is a great pitcher. Yeah, I, I don't have much on him except, man, his slider. It, it's just, it's beautiful. It is chef's kiss fucking beautiful. Oh, yeah. It, it's it, it's top five nastiest sliders in the league. 
And then Brandon Drury signs a two-year deal with the Angels. And look, Brandon Drury had a great season last year uh, between Cincinnati and San Diego. And I think this is an amazing pickup for the Angels. They just keep getting better. Yeah, um, the Angels are definitely one of those teams where I know, you know, the media has kind of scrutinized them a little bit for kind of being like on the cusp every year. And it's been like that for what feels like forever, basically Mike Trout's entire career. And I don't know, I, I feel like this move is definitely them, de- you know, they're, they're really trying to push for a big playoff run. And it definitely could be their time. Oh, 100%. Yeah, they look they look primed for a good move. Like they've made a lot of moves this offseason that I grade super highly. Like the Tyler Anderson pickup, uh, a phenomenal starting pitcher to pick up. Brandon Drury, great pickup. Gio Urshela, another good pickup. We'll have to see how his defense looks at short, but um yeah, a lot of solid solid moves for the Angels this offseason. And then um a short amount of time, former Yankee Matt Carpenter uh, signs a one-year deal with the Padres, and I'd love to hear what you think because you got to see some of that Carpenter magic last year. Yeah, he uh, he's definitely, I feel like, a he, he's a living legend, and it was definitely a typical Yankee move to, to bring him into the team. I, I feel like the Yankees are a huge destination for a lot of older players that are still talented but not as talented, and I feel like the Yankees love those guys. Matt Carpenter was he was fine with the Yankees. I'm I'm definitely excited to see what he does in the NL. Sure, I I think he could be a decent pickup for the Padres. Of course, he's not going to be in your lineup a hundred percent of the time, but who knows? He could be a clutch hitter. Um, he hits home runs. I I feel like it's a solid pickup. Yeah, I, I do think that you know his bat worked very well in New York. Lefty bat, short porch, the mustache, man. Oh, the mustache on that fella. Wow. But um, let's get into the Carlos Correa situation. So Carlos Correa, last week, comes out. Huge deal. He has agreed to a contract with the Giants. He's going to the Giants. Then we just kind of sit around and we're like, okay, cool. Carlos Correa is on the Giants now. But we never got the full signing. We never got a press conference, anything like that. And then the other night, it's like the middle of the night, and I wake up to a notification on my phone that says Carlos Correa to the Mets, and I just think to myself, I'm like, wait a second, that can't be right, because he signed to the Giants. You can't just leave like that. So, something came up in, in his medical examinations that the Giants were not pleased with, and... So as soon as they said they wanted to renegotiate because of this, the Mets organization finds out and Uncle Steve, Steve Cohen, decides to just drop a bag on him. 300 and uh, I can't even remember. It's 300 something million dollars. Look it up real fast. For, I believe, 10 years. And just like that, Two of the biggest free agents on the market have slipped right through the Giants' fingers. We had John Heyman during the winter meetings saying that Aaron Judge to the Giants was a lock. Six minutes later, that tweet gets deleted. A minute later, Aaron Judge signs historic deal with the Yankees. Like, the Giants, dude. Oh, my God. (laughs) What are y'all doing? 
it just makes you wonder what they saw in his um, medical evaluation that wanted, you know, made them want to renegotiate. And I guess they can't release that because it's his medical information. But I, I don't know. I'm very curious to see how well, that fell through. Interestingly enough, Mr. Super Agent Scott Boris Uh-oh. decided that he was just going to release it. Oh. And, and that he released that it was an injury issue. And we've found out, uh, I, I believe you're actually at work uh, when this came out, Luke. Okay. That the injury that they were not a fan of was Carlos Correa's injury in 2014. They said that that still has looming effects on Carlos Correa now and that they wanted to renegotiate his contract for a lower amount of money, I believe a lower amount of years as well, because of an injury that happened in 2014. And they lost him like that. Well, in that case, I I don't blame Carlos Correa for kind of you know, fucking off essentially, um, giving them the middle finger and signing somewhere else. Uh, you know, he's definitely betting on himself, which he has to, he, he's an athlete in the free agent. You have to bet on yourself, um, and free agency. Sorry. And yeah, the giants, I, I feel like as soon as their, their eyebrows were raised, if I'm Carlos Correa, hell yeah, I, I want to look at a different team. You know, cause if you're there and you sign that contract with the giants, they're, they're probably going to hold that injury over his head. So, you know, a lot of people, they might look at this and be like, wow, Carlos Correa is a dickhead. He, you know, shouldn't have done this so suddenly. But honestly, I can't blame the guy. Oh, no, not at all. And I don't blame the Mets for swooping in. Carlos Correa is a generational talent at shortstop. You can say what you want, but the guy is amazing. Yeah, maybe he hit a couple home runs because they were banging trash cans in the dugout. But regardless, it's pretty hard to hit a home run. So. I think we also have to give props. I know you're not very in tune with sports agents, but Scott Boris is just racking up the money. Oh, yeah. Getting all these guys to sign these big old contracts. Man, Scott Boris is the super agent of super agents. Like, nobody has a thing on Scott Boris. He's just out here taking everybody's money. So... As much as, yeah, the, the Mets swooped in and stole Carlos Correa or Carlos Correa turned away from the Giants because of some injury problems. Scott Boris, as soon as he heard that they were turning away and, and that they wanted to renegotiate, he probably hit Steve Cohen's phone number in his phone, called him up and said, let's let's negotiate a deal. And it happened like that. So... This whole interest, this interesting situation is just, it's something that I don't, I don't think I've seen in my time of, you know, really heavily viewing the MOB. It's a crazy situation. Very similar to the Luis Figo transfer, though. I wanted to make that point. Um, I'm not going to mm-hmm. go into the whole story, but. Uh, Luis Luis Figo, uh, his transfer from Barcelona to Real Madrid was quite similar in the way that it happened. It wasn't an injury issue. It was a money issue for Figo. But it was one of those where, I mean, hours, hours before the transfer window was going to end, Figo was a a Barcelona player. And Barcelona fans thought that he was a Barcelona player and just ends up signing with Real Madrid just like that because of an argument that Figo got into with the uh, Barcelona president at the time. Very interesting. Yeah, uh, 
I do know that that story with Figo, and it is an interesting one, and it it is very similar to this. Um, I, I think that I think the parallel is that with the way that free agency works in, in the MLB, where you know anybody can be talking to anybody at, at any time. If Carlos Correa and Scott Boris want to be up at three in the morning talking to whoever the fuck, they can. And they can just continue to do that. In soccer, you know, it's a little bit more formal. You know, you have to send them the money. They have to accept the transfer. And I think it changes a lot. It definitely does, for sure. Um, so we'll get, we'll get done with that one. And the last piece of news, um, it, it came out just a couple of hours ago, is Trevor Bauer uh, reinstated, oh, wow. effective immediately. After a neutral arbiter gets his ban cut to 194 games, so he has served his ban officially. And okay, I'm not. I'm going to separate the art from the artist. Trevor Bauer on the field is great for baseball. He's electric, great pitcher, a, a Cy Young, a perennial Cy Young candidate. Um, like he's got emotion. He is just he's loud and explosive obviously whatever he did you know we really don't know what happened what's the truth you know both sides can argue all they want the charges were dropped whatever happened happened and if it did happen that's horrible and he's a horrible person but he's good for the sport when it comes to what he does on the field yeah um Actually, wow, this is really exciting news. This is the first time I'm hearing it. Um, I've been keeping up with his vlogs. He He's just great for the game of baseball, aside from the allegations against him, you know, which are horrible allegations. But you know, the charges were dropped, which is really good for Trevor Bauer. And I, I think it's good for baseball to see him back out on the, uh, on the diamond. He is a super talented player, and I, I just can't wait to see, you know, how strong he can come back. Yeah, and, and like for me, like I'm a baseball nerd, and the baseball nerds love Trevor Bauer because he's out here like collecting his sweat every day, getting <laughs> hydrated correctly, and like if he has a a stomach ache, he's not making a start because his RPMs will be down. Like he is the biggest nerd, and it is so awesome. Yeah, and and I like how he shows that a lot in his vlogs. I know he does does a lot of sleep testing on himself which is interesting and if if you haven't if you're a baseball fan and you haven't watched Trevor Bauer's vlogs take it from a non-baseball fan I think they are so fucking entertaining and Grayson hit the nail hit the nail on the fucking head with what he said about Trevor Bauer being a nerd because you with Trevor Bauer's vlogs you get to see a, a just a really uncut like not just a pro athlete, but an elite pro athlete and how they study, how serious they take it, how much they watch their arm, their sleep, as I mentioned previously. It's honestly insane the kind of uh, precautions Trevor Bauer takes to be a you know a better baseball player and keep himself healthy. It's amazing. Yeah, and like he just continuously pushes himself to get better. Like when he got to Cincinnati um, and – he was like, I want to start every four days. Nobody does that. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that is like, it, it's not an unwritten rule, but everybody's got a five man rotation. 
So if you want to be the one and, and you know, it, it, it will help out your team if you can do it. And Trevor Bauer can do it. That's the thing. And he's the only guy willing. You don't see Verlander or Scherzer or DeGrom, Kershaw in his prime. Like, none of those guys were out here requesting to pitch extra. Trevor Bauer wants to be on the field because that's where he can use all of the training that he puts in and all of the effort that he puts in to become the best player. He can put it on showcase for the world. And I mean, who knows his... um... I feel like he he knows his arm better than any pitcher has that I've ever seen. Um, and going back to like him being a nerd with with all the research and the practice and the effort that he puts in, he is more confident than other athletes. And he's just more smart about him and his own body, so it makes sense for him to want to pitch more because he knows he can do it. And not only is it just confidence, but he is researched. He knows it's healthy for him to do it and safe for him to do it, and it's really amazing. Yeah, it, it truly is. And if he would love, I, I would love nothing more for him to, every time he gets pulled out of the game, throw the ball into the stands in center field because that was my favorite thing he has ever done. I don't care that it it ultimately got him traded. It was awesome. I still, to this day, I know exactly what clip you're talking about. Dude looked like he didn't even like get a running start. He just fucking threw that shit. That, that's like one of my favorite baseball clips of all time. Yeah, well, the guy throws long toss, foul pull to foul pull before a game. And we're talking about how strong his arm is and how well conditioned he is. And right before he goes on the mound, he's throwing a ball like 300 feet. It, it, Trevor Bauer is he he's a lot more unique than people give him credit for I think definitely and, and of course you know uh, a shadow has been cast on him because of all the uh, the allegations and, and the suspension and you know he he comes off as a, a cocky guy because he's confident I think there's a difference between confidence and cockiness because cockiness you can't back it up Zach Wilson's cocky Trevor Bauer's confident. Yeah, um, and definitely kind of going back to his vlogs, is uh, I, I kind of thought before I started watching Trevor Bauer's vlogs that he was a very kind of cocky guy. But you can tell his, his confidence comes from total total focus on his body and what he's doing. It, it, it's, it's amazing what he can do. And I know I keep saying it, but this guy, his vlogs are very, very interesting. So interesting. And I, I know I know that's where his confidence comes from is because of all the research that he does and all the technology that he uses. Yeah. But I do want to get into something a little bit interesting. So Rob Manfred came out uh, and it's been reported that he wants 32 teams in the MLB, which would mean that there's two cities that will be getting an MLB team. And I, and I, didn't want to include Las Vegas because I think ultimately that's where the athletics are going to end up anyway. And nobody wants to fill that hole in Oakland. So, um, Luke, do you want to start it off with your first city? Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm, this one is very interesting. Um, I, I like Tijuana being a city to host, uh, an MLB team. And this is because I, I think California, California is already an interesting place as it is, but especially for sports, there are a, a lot of sports teams in California and especially, you know, there's a lot of uh, baseball teams in California. 
I think a team in Mexico would be super cool in like a Southern California, Northern Mexico kind of division. And I think a, a Tijuana team would create a, just a completely different atmosphere for Californian baseball. And it, it would just be really interesting to see, you know, what games, what, what like divisional games would look like in Tijuana. We know baseball is huge in Hispanic places. And I, I just think Tijuana would be cool. I think it would. Um, do I think it's a realistic landing spot? No. Um, I don't think the MLB is willing. I think that if they go outside of the U.S. and Canada, um, which it's really not even outside of the U.S., I think it'd be Puerto Rico. But I do agree with you 100%. Tijuana would be uh, an amazing place to watch baseball. I just don't think that the MLB wants to incur a risk whatsoever and i'm not saying that even anywhere in mexico is a risk i'm saying that tijuana is a place that not many people want to go yeah and that's definitely a good point um and, and to go back to what you said earlier is you uh, you mentioned cuba havana probably would have been my second choice here sure yeah yeah um so i'll go for my pick uh, my first city is Nashville. And look, I know that Tennessee is part of Braves country, and I appreciate <laughs> every single Braves fan that comes from Tennessee. But Nashville would be such a great MLB city because, look, it, it's in the southeast, and, and it's in the part of the southeast where we really enjoy baseball. Uh, every time I'm at a Braves game, there's tons and tons of Tennessee license plates getting off of 75 going to truest and there's i I, the last time i was there i I met a couple who was from tennessee they were sitting next to us like it is extremely extremely popular to be a brave fan in the southeast but nashville's got the perfect balance of population and tourist attraction that i think it truly could be a great place for a franchise like look nashville is like one of the biggest like bachelorette party and bachelor party locations, especially in the Southeast. Like a lot of people go to Nashville. It's the country music capital. It's, you know, Broadway. And and there's so much going on there that I think that uh, an MLB franchise could truly thrive. I um, definitely like Nashville. Um, I, I definitely like the Nashville take for sure. Um, I disagree with you on the population, though. I don't think they would really have a strong population to support an MLB team, but I don't know. It definitely would be interesting to see Nashville get one if they did. Yeah, and and I think that in Nashville is on the, the western side of Tennessee, but that means that they could bring in some Alabama, some Mississippi, Arkansas, like those areas need a professional sports or even just a professional sports team. And if there was an MLB franchise in Nashville, I think that they would catch on. Obviously there's going to be people that stick to the Braves and in Mississippi, there's going to be people that stick to, uh, I know there's some Astros fans down there. So obviously those people are going to be loyal, but when it comes to, you know, maybe somebody hasn't quite gotten into baseball yet. I think that Nashville is probably the best spot in the Southeast to start. Um, would you like me to go next or do you want to give your, uh, 
Oh, no, go ahead. So, I told you before we started recording that I like Seal. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to switch, cross out Seal, like Tokyo, Tokyo, Japan. Um, there have been so many amazing Japanese baseball players throughout the years in the MLB. My favorite being Ichiro um, Otani. He, he is from Japan, correct? Pretty sure he is. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he is. another one. Um, Japanese baseball league is always fun to see highlights of. Um, and I think it'd be cool to have a team all the way out in Tokyo. Is it feasible? No. I really don't think it's feasible at all. The travel times for teams to be getting there, I can already see it now. Teams and players would be completely bitching and moaning about going to Tokyo, or at least I feel like they would. It would be an insane travel, and whoever was in the division with the team in Tokyo, they'd be having to travel there more. But I don't know. It would be cool. They would have a big market for it, I believe, with fans and I don't know. It, it would be also cool to see the Tokyo teams maybe start like a minor league in, in Japan and get some other minor league teams around Japan. It, and it would be cool to just see the pool of talent. It, it would definitely help out Japanese baseball, I, I feel like, it, especially getting to the MLB. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that it would take a lot. Like you said, like the, the travel, is, is it's really just not possible. but. Um, it's obvious that Japan is a, a huge pipeline for MLB talent and, you know, outside of the Americas, it, it's easily the top it's them in Korea. So I, I do think that it would be a great place. And I think that what it takes though, is instead of it being like an expansion team, what the MLB needs to do is a, a partnership with the Japanese uh, professional base, or the I, I think it's called the Nippon Professional Baseball, um, the NPB. And that would kind of jumpstart this connection between the two. And, and obviously, I'm not saying that the MLB should just like poach all the good Japanese players, but we're seeing an, an influx of um, Japanese and Korean players coming to the MLB. And like Kodai Senga just signed with the Mets. Uh, obviously, in the past couple of years, Haas Young Kim, Shohei Otani, even you know guys that have been in the league for a while, like Yu Darvish. Um, they all come from Korea and Japan, and yeah, I, I do think it would be a, a beneficial thing for culture and for um, Asian representation in the MLB. But yeah, like you said, it's just not feasible. Yeah, at least right now, I, I think what other option could be, and of course, this doesn't, you know, get rid of the travel time and everything, but it, it would be cool to see maybe a team in SEAL get added and a team in Tokyo, maybe even kind of like making its own division with even, you know, more MLB teams, or not more MLB teams, more teams being created for, you know, um, that sort of Asia uh, region there. But it, it really just isn't feasible, but damn, would it be cool. So I do have kind of a thought here it just popped in my mind do you think they could pull something kind of like what manchester city's done what red bulls have done where they have a team in another country practically so like man city and nycfc do you think that and then red bulls salzburg um there, there's another red bulls team in austria i believe and then new york red bulls do you think that there is a team in the mlb that maybe their ownership group would be 
looking towards also purchasing a team in either Korean or Japanese baseball? That that would be very cool. Um, I don't have enough baseball knowledge to say, you know, kind of what team would be looking to do that or keen on doing it. But, um, yeah, may, I don't know. It, maybe maybe the whole ownership thing and having like sister clubs are, is kind of like a more European thing. So I don't really see a baseball team doing it. But I just, I don't know. I just can't get over the fact of how cool it would be. I mean, you would have sold out stadiums in Tokyo if there was an MLB team there. And, you know, already with there being a lot of Japanese talent and having a lot of Japanese talent in the league already and have been legends in the league, I feel like it would just give more of an opportunity for young Japanese players to make it to America. And it would just be so sick to see that. It would be so sick to see packed stadiums. And it, it would just be cool to have a team there. Yeah. And uh, I'll get into mine. My second one is New Orleans. Um, New Orleans already supports the Saints, Pelicans, and they've got a, a couple of minor league teams there that do really well, uh, uh, primarily the Baby Cakes. Yeah. Uh, they, they do a great job. And I, I really do think that New Orleans could 100% support an MLB team. So at the moment, Louisiana's kind of split. Um, there's some Astros fans just because of the relative, um, location to Houston. And then some of them are Braves fans just because it's that Southeastern thing. Um, and you know, TBS and Turner kind of changed everything, but uh, yeah, I think New Orleans would be a great landing spot. It's like I said, it's obviously a place that can support uh, a professional sports team, and baseball is huge in Louisiana. LSU is like one of, if not the best program right now in baseball. And I think that, you know, with how many people go to the LSU baseball games, what's to say they wouldn't be showing up tenfold at MLB games? Yeah, I, I really don't have much to say about um, Orleans hosting a baseball team, but I, I definitely like your argument there. Um I don't know. Do you not worry about um, LSU and their baseball being so rooted as, you know, like this is the baseball team that we have. This is the one we're going to root for. Do you not think that maybe if they added a team there, like a professional team, do you think it might kind of flop with LSU being so big and instilled in the um, the state for baseball? So I don't think so. Only so like, you know, LSU's in Baton Rouge. This team would be in New Orleans, and it's not like all that far away, but you know it, it is different. And I think that adding an MLB franchise in a place that already has a baseball following can can only be a positive impact because it's going to bring so many more kids to it, and, and that's what that's what the MLB needs is youth. They need the youth to truly care about baseball. I played baseball my whole childhood, and it's because I grew up in an area where that's the normal thing to do. Like, everybody I knew played baseball. And so I think that, you know, in places where there's not as much MLB representation and there's not even maybe college baseball representation, that that is where Little League is lacking. And I think that. You know, adding these franchises in 
will help bring in more players. Because you never know. Maybe there's some kid that lives in New Orleans that just plays football because he likes the Saints. But he could be the next Mike Trout. We just have no idea because that, that market isn't tapped. I, I like the way you put that. Is the market's not tapped, so we'll we'll never really know. That's a very good point. All right. Anything else you got for this one? Um. Yeah, I actually just thought of a third while you were talking. Um, Canton, Georgia. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but no. Just growing growing up in you know North Georgia, kind of to um, bounce off of what you were saying is uh, it, it is huge up here, especially. I mean, just just. Just ask Dick Sporting Goods when uh, we have shop weekends in springtime. It's uh, fucking ridiculous. and Not fun. Yeah, and it's just insane the amount of clubs and the Little League attention that's just in our little area of North Georgia. It's it's really awesome to see. Um, but yeah, Canton's obviously a joke. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's obviously other places. You know, uh, an honorable mention goes to Montreal. Obviously, they got theirs taken. Uh, I think Vancouver could support one. And there, there's obviously a couple other places that could definitely do one. Like I said earlier, Puerto Rico. Uh, I think Puerto Rico could support one for sure. Cuba, like you had said. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic could hold one. Um, but I think that when it comes to the MLB, I, I as much as Rob Manfred can say that he wants 32 teams, he's not going to do it. The the MLB right now is not in the they're they're not in a position to expand. And I, I think that it's important that, you know, we bring baseball back to the forefront. Because uh, across the nation it, it goes NFL, NBA, MLB hockey. And I don't think it should be that way. Uh I you know, baseball is America's pastime. And I feel like in multiple spots in the country, it's being overshadowed. So um, I think it's important that baseball continues to grow more and more and more before they really think about expansion because they're just not quite in a place. Yeah, um, and I actually just thought of a really good question to ask you with all that baseball knowledge you got in your brain. And I think this, this, might, this might stretch it a little bit. This might stretch it. Ready, Grayson? Yeah, man. Out of all of the cities, or states even, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of broaden it for you. Out of, out of all the cities and states that only have one baseball team, which one of them do you think could hold two? There was to be a second one added. Ooh, that is tough. Let's see. This is a mm. tough question. I, I couldn't answer this question if you asked it to me. Maybe I, I would I would kind of want to go bold and this one this one's super bold and this one might be a dumb take, but maybe New Jersey. And I know well, actually oh, fuck no never mind because that's a different state. I, I I think of New York and New Jersey as the same thing since they're so close to each other. Yeah, I, I there's not many. Um, I think that. The states that already have two have two for a reason, and the states that only have one have one for a reason. Yeah. I think that, you know, possibly you could say that, like, 
North Carolina could even use two, but I don't think that's realistic. Uh, you know, they could put one in Charlotte and um, they could put one in, uh, oh, I'm totally blanking, but yeah, I don't, I don't think North Carolina is feasible. You could maybe save Virginia um, because I think, you know, they kind of share the nationals with, with um, Maryland and Delaware, yep. technically. I think Virginia could probably support another. Um, but outside of that, I, I don't think there's any that realistically could. I honestly, I think that Florida could support a third. Really? I, I think Texas could support a third. Uh, San Antonio um, would work. But, yeah, I don't I don't know of many others that could. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to clarify, I... I remember the reason why I said New Jersey. They are New York and New Jersey are obviously two different states, but I feel like when it comes to baseball and and football, even there is they're they're the same market. Um, I I think New Jersey could yeah. probably you know maybe put a third team in that market, but you know a big argument against that would be how entrenched the Yankees and the Mets are, and I. No, those are fans that I don't see you. You're really changing their their opinion. I mean, that's been a way of life for a while uh, in that market up there. So, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, it would be interesting to put a third team in in the the tri-state area. But um, let, let's get into some World Cup stuff. Um, obviously, you know by now everybody knows how these things went. Um, so we'll we'll kind of quickly just um go through what's happened and then we'll talk about kind of the celebrations and some of the news and aftermath of this championship game um but first we got to start with the third place game croatia beats morocco 2-1 um i don't remember what our predictions were i think i had morocco and and i think it was just because of a a passion thing but croatia just seemed to be the better team we actually both had morocco and we both said the same thing it was uh morocco you know they still had that pride of getting a uh, a bronze medal at this world cup but um i don't know i guess it i guess the other side of it that we uh kind of didn't really look at grayson is that um morocco it, it was probably a world cup or bust for them of course you know their run was amazing but I could totally see it you know they they get to the third place game you know they're they're disappointed they you know they had the whole country behind their back and now everybody's just kind of like you know, their, their, um, you know, love is kind of flopped a little bit just because they're, they're not really in it anymore. They're playing for a third place instead of uh, the world cup final, but yeah, Croatia, they just, they just went in there and slapped them kind of. Yeah. in like two early goals, um, it stayed close. Uh, like the, the, the game winning goal came in the 42nd minute. The whole second half was just like, both teams trying to see who would budge and uh, Croatia ended up taking it. There's not much to say. It's a third place. Uh, Nobody's celebrating third place. It is impressive though, Croatia, how far they've made it um, back to back world cups. I mean, for years, it's a long time in, in soccer and players can be in their prime and out of their prime in the middle of that four years. So it's impressive that they, you know, even stayed consistent to me. So props to to Croatia, props to Croatia. For sure. But um, let's get into, obviously, the most important, the World Cup oh, final. Man. <laughs> Argentina versus France. And, and I really want to go, like, break it down uh, throughout this. So, 
Messi gets the penalty in the 23rd, and I didn't get much opportunity to watch the beginning of this game. Um, was there any problems with them conceding that penalty? Um, I, I feel like it kind of stunned the French, but the moral of this game was really, I mean, there were other teams, you know, there was a little bit where Argentina had more momentum. There was a little bit where France had more momentum, but the momentum was not overwhelming one way or the other, in my opinion. They both stayed, stayed really level-headed, and they did not let the momentum completely break them down. And I feel like that was kind of the name of the game with this penalty in particular. Okay, yeah. And, and then 36-minute uh, comes around. Angel Di Maria scores the goal, takes Argentina up two, and, and it's not even halftime yet. And I feel like... At that point, as fans and, you know, as you know, some of us are ignorant soccer fans. I wouldn't consider myself one. But as Americans viewing this, um, you see two goals on the board and you're like, oh, that's going to be tough to come back from because these don't come often. Yeah. Um, and, and especially, you know, to kind of uh, dig deeper there is uh, France is still a very young team. And I could totally see, you know. Two goals down, you're in the World Cup final, pressure gets to you, you collapse, and you don't make the comeback. But France, they were they just they showed up second half. They they were not playing like a team that was defeated, that's for sure. Never in the game were they yeah. playing defeated. Yeah, and um I do want to get, you know, your thoughts on the, an early double substitution, forty first minute. Uh, Marcus Thuram comes on for Olivier Giroud. And Randall Kolobuani comes on for Usman Dembele. And I just want to get your thoughts because I think Giroud and Dembele give a leadership aspect to this team, primarily Giroud. He's a seasoned veteran and he's played, he's got a lot of caps for France. And I was surprised to see him come off before even halftime. Uh, I was too. Dembele, not so much, but Giroud. 100%. Giroud, you know, no matter how bad or good you want to call him, he finds ways to score. And, you know, your point, his leadership is unmatched. Um, You know, he's up there in age with Loris. He's been around. He has caps. He has goals. He's been in this situation before. Um, Not necessarily in a final, but he's played in World Cups before, played in big games before. I was extremely surprised to see him get taken out. But, the two guys that came came on, man, I, their pace made all the difference in the game. Uh, it was a super bold decision by France to take both of them out, but it, it really kept them in the game. Yeah, it, it ended up being a great move. And um, we see it, it was a little bit slow going up to the 80th minute. Um, Kylian Mbappe, uh, Argentina concedes a penalty. Mbappe scores, and this is where everybody saw the momentum shifting. Yeah, um, man, I, I really, I really wanted to talk about Mbappe uh, on this podcast tonight. Um, wow, twenty-three years old, and in, in soccer, it, my opinion and, and my experience being a soccer fan, pressure is one of the number one factors of why players wouldn't su- succeed in the position that Mbappe was put in over and over again in this final, he prevailed every single time. And he was still sprinting in the 115th minute. I want to point out, Brazil, they had a lot of young penalty takers, and it hurt them. And Mbappe, he's 23 years old. He's he's probably going to be the World Cup uh, 
uh, leading goal scorer of all time. I, I definitely think that that's probably already in his bag, even though he doesn't have it. I think he 100% will get it. And, uh, yeah, unwavered. Definitely Mbappe gained a lot of respect from me. Yeah, and, and then just one minute later, Mbappe evens it up in the 81st minute. And I, I want to hear, you know, what was your reaction when this happened so quickly after they've conceded a penalty? It's it's just typical Mbappe. Um you know, he wasn't getting many touches in the first half at all. He was so quiet. Argentina did such a good job marking him. He wasn't even really getting the ball. In, in typical Mbappe fashion, you know, he, especially with the second goal, I'm not really talking about the penalty here, but the second goal, his pace and finishing, he's explosive. He's a game changer. And, you know, Argentina constantly had to worry about him in the game. And I feel like maybe... You know, with them um, being up to nothing and conceding the penalty, they may have kind of relaxed just a little bit um, with him, and that's all he needed. Yeah, uh, I, like I said, I didn't see much of the beginning of this game uh, until near the end of um, extra time. Yeah, he, he, was uh, a, catch... he was a ghost in the first half, which makes his second half even more impressive. Yeah, for sure. And so, uh, you know, full time is reached. They they get uh, I believe it was eight minutes extra uh, added time after the first half or sorry uh, after final or ugh, full time and they go into extra time and 108th minute comes around and Leo Messi's back and puts Argentina up three two yeah uh, typical Messi fashion um, you know he shows up he's clutch he's dangerous um, I don't I don't really have much to say about this goal um, it really I don't want to take away from Argentina. They they won the game. Their defense was way better than what I what I thought it was. A hundred percent. I kind of shit on it in the last podcast we did. Defense was way better. They did give up three goals, but they were pretty sound. They made a lot of like really good you know choices in defense. They didn't really mess up a lot. Um, but, but man, the the way France responded, they still didn't give up even after conceding to Messi and. An extra time, which I thought was super impressive. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think that, you know, everything that happened throughout this game uh, was a great reflection on both of these teams overall. And, um, you know, we'll get into it where 118th minute comes around. Like, it's crunch time, 100%. And another penalty for Mbappe. And... He shows up again, and I, I'm going to keep saying it. He's 23 years old, and put in this position. He put the entire fucking country on his back. I have always kind of hated Mbappe. I think he he's a little bit cocky. He's full of himself. But, I mean, in this World Cup, he in, especially in the final, he completely showed up. And I I can't I can't believe he scored he scored three penalties in this game, didn't he? Um. Yeah, if you include uh, penalty kicks, yeah. yes. And, and that's me. That's just mind blowing. That that's an insane, you know, feat to take on as a twenty three year old. Um, and, and he was amazing. I, I just, it, it was just right for him. It was right. It was right against uh, Argentina in the final. Love it. So, obviously, they tie it up three three. Um, we only get. A couple of minutes of added time after the end of extra time, and we go to penalty kicks. And 
this is where we saw how well Argentina and France were set up because we talked about how Brazil fell short in penalty kicks earlier in the tournament because they let the young guys go first and like Neymar didn't kick a penalty and Argentina sets the pace. Lionel Messi steps up for the first penalty, scores it. Yeah, and and what that does is, you know, any young guy that you have going after Messi, you know, he set the example. He showed you how it's done. And and, and to me, as a young player behind Messi, watching him score, and let's say I'm going after him, it eases my senses a little bit. Um, It's not like I had to go first. It's not like I had to go last. But I, I just feel like with a leader stepping up and taking the first penalty, you're really doing your team a favor there. It, regardless, honestly, if you score or miss, I would say. I would go as far as say if Messi misses this penalty, so what? He still went first. He's still the leader of the team. If anything, that should pump you up to, you know, save him. Um, And, and yeah, it, it was just – it's very smart for Messi to take the first penalty. Neymar should have taken the first penalty for Brazil. Um, Yeah, and I, I like Messi taking the first penalty, obviously. And I actually, I just realized, um, I said that Messi was the first person to go penalty. It was Mbappe. Uh, France had the first penalties. Um, and so Mbappe converts this penalty, uh, bottom left. And once again, it, it's the guy that has showed out this entire tournament. The most talented guy on this roster steps up to the penalty spot, opens it up, scores and that gives every single person behind him just that much more confidence yeah i i have nothing else to add to that you hit you hit it there so like we said messi converts his penalty and then kingsley Coman, um his penalty is saved uh by um emiliano martinez yeah, and I, I haven't mentioned him. Uh, he also had that insane save in extra time uh, where um, oh yeah, said, what, what was his name? Kumani, right? Uh, Kola Muani. Kola Muani. I mean, he's he's one on one with Martinez, and Martinez saves it like by the his foot. It, it crazy crazy stretch for it, and he even I, honorable mention. Mbappe scored his first penalty, but Martinez got hands to it, and, and I I thought that was impressive. Martinez, we, we haven't really talked about him a lot yet, um, but he was amazing in the penalty shootout and throughout the game, even with conceding three goals, in my opinion. Yeah, like he really showed out throughout this entire tournament, and I think he's somebody that, um, you know, he's at Aston Villa right now. Um, we could see a lot of interest in the transfer window for him. Yeah, um, Byron's goalie is pretty old. He, he is, you know, he is the guy in Byron, but he's pretty old saying uh, yeah but um so yeah paulo dybala steps up converts his penalty um straight up the middle and then um schwameni a, a young player who's really come onto the scene in the last year um comes up and, and misses it uh close but misses left it's a tough one. Yeah, and in a penalty shootout of this magnitude, um, you you really just got to be perfect. And if you miss, it kinda puts it in everybody's head, you know, like, okay, it's 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 really time now. Kind of, you know, it adds pressure for sure. So 
at least got to draw a save. You can't miss. Yeah, and the circumstances that Schwameni was in are reminiscent of Bukayo Saka. Not that you know it was the last chance, but Bukayo Saka in those Euros, it's his first time playing for England in the Euros, and he had a great tournament. He he's a outstanding young player, and the pressure was put on him, and it, it just happened that he fell short. And we can expect that from young guys. Look, not everybody is Mbappe. Not everybody is Leo Messi when he was young. Like, there's guys that are going to make mistakes when the pressure's on. Yeah, I, I have nothing really to add to that. It, it's just, you know, in, in soccer, penalty kicks are just so hard. And as it is already, I'll put it in a World Cup final. I mean, you, you really, it's hard to just completely fault the guys that are young, that come in there, they step up to try, and they miss. It, it's just, it's hard to, hard to get mad at them. It's hard to fault them. And, you know, you just kind of hope they get better as uh, their career goes on. Yeah, and, and so next, Leandro Paredes steps up to the spot and converts his penalty. And, and at this point, it is desperation mode for France. Yeah. Because this puts Argentina at 3-1 in the penalty kicks. And, <clears throat> and you know, everything is on the line here. Yeah, uh, that penalty, you know, it's it's the dagger. You know, your team misses and other team follows up with a goal. It, it like you like you put it, it's desperation time. Um, but it's also it really is it's a dagger for France, and you could tell how it affected them the rest of the shootout for sure. Yep, and, and then a guy that we've already mentioned multiple times now, Randall Kolomuani converts his penalty, and that dagger, you know, kind of pulls out just a little bit. Yeah, uh, shout out to him for, you know, making his penalty after all that. I mean, you got to think he just watched his teammate miss and then Argentina comes back with a goal of their own and it is desperation time and, and he showed up. So, yeah, props to him. That That's that's also one of the hardest penalties to take is after your teammates missed and the other team has responded with a goal. That That's a tough one to make. And, and he made it. And as I'm looking at this, I didn't even realize that uh, during this penalty shootout, right after this Kolomuani, um goal, Emiliano Martinez is given a yellow card. Really? Yeah, I- I'm not quite sure what it was for. I don't remember that happening. But yeah, uh, he was booked um, after that goal. And then, you know. <laughs> oh, man, it must have been a celebration. He's a total meme right now. That guy's hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and so... Gonzalo Montiel comes up to the spot and converts his penalty kick, and Argentina wins. And that right there is when they twist the dagger. Yeah. Um, Argentina are champions, man. Uh, it's been, what, 40 years since Maradona did it in 86, I believe. It, it's you know, Argentina have always had good teams. They've always had talent. And, you know, they're finally back and they have their third World Cup win after 40 years. It's truly an amazing moment. But the even bigger moment, and I knew you were going to talk about this, but I'm going to start it. As a, my introduction to soccer is watching Ronaldo's skill videos. Or I, I grew up a Ronaldo fanboy. I was never a, a diehard fan of any of the teams he was on. I grew up a Chelsea fan. But Ronaldo was my introduction to soccer, and he was my, my favorite player for a long time before the before the Eden Hazard days. 
as a Ronaldo fan, there is literally nothing you can say anymore. At Messi is the GOAT. Messi is the greatest player of all time. And this World Cup sealed it. It, it was... It was an amazing win and an amazing game for just my generation. You know, everybody, no matter what sport they like, no matter if they like soccer, hate it, everybody has an opinion on the Messi versus Ronaldo debate. Well, guess what? It's it's literally fucking over. <laughs> There's nothing you can say. I would still say that Ronaldo is the greatest goal scorer of all time. Messi's the GOAT of all time. And this game sealed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... That's just how it is. Look, Messi has done everything now. Look, he's won La Liga multiple times. Uh, he won Liga last year. He's got the Ballon d'Ors. He's got the UCL finals. He's got a Copa America. He's got a World Cup. The man's got a treble to his name. Like, he is the GOAT. For sure. And... You know, the elephant in the room, that was what always loomed over Messi's head. Can he do it for Argentina? Can, you know, can he bring Argentina a World Cup win? And he finally did it. He's out of Maradona's shadow, and he's out of anybody else's shadow. He is the GOAT of soccer. Yeah, and, and, you know, now that he's out of the shadow, the light shines on him. Finally, on the international stage, the light is shined on him. and. Somebody had to walk up and fuck it all up, and that's Salt Bay. Yeah, I, I, okay. I'm actually really glad you brought this up on the podcast because what the fuck was he doing? Like, I read somewhere that Messi told him no like four times before the infamous picture was taken, where Messi looks completely weirded out. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure Salt Salt Bay is Turkish as well. I, what the fuck is he doing out there? Yeah, and so like. All this stuff is going on now with Salt Bay. Like, obviously, the big talk was like, why is this guy being such an asshole? Because he didn't just do it to Messi. He he did it to, like, every other player. And, like, there's one where, like, he grabbed the trophy out of one of the player's hands and was, like, holding it up for a picture while the other players are, like, holding his child. What? And it's like, dude, do you not realize that this is not your moment whatsoever? And everybody kind of questions, like, how did he get on the field? And so it comes out today that now FIFA's investigating how he even got field access. Imagine if he gets busted after all this. That'd be hilarious. Well, and what's funny is that <laughs> the the US Open Cup has uh banned Salt Bay from all future events. Wow. It's interesting. And, like, that's not really that significant of a thing. Like, I'm sure that he wouldn't have done this if it weren't the World Cup. Like, this is the biggest thing. Yeah, um, I know, I want to say Messi's been to his restaurant one time, and it, it was when Salt Bay was popular. Um, I, I don't know, that it's just very, it was very awkward to see him out there. And the picture with Messi is just, I mean, it makes me cringe. Yeah, it, it's horrible, and, and so um, yeah, fuck Salt Bay. Salt Bay. But the the celebrations in Argentina were amazing because it's nothing like U.S. professional sports celebrations. Look, we love we go wild for our championships in the U.S., but this was for an entire country, a, a country that's been waiting. And you know, like there's 
you know, like two generations at this point that hadn't seen a World Cup since Maradona. And it, it finally happened. And, you know, in U.S. sports culture, we scream and cheer. But when these Argentinian fans watched that final penalty, like there were there were tears. Like they were like hugging loved ones and like it, it truly shows how much not just soccer and not just this team means to them. It's more about like the family connection and like the connection that you make with other people through sport. Yeah. And I mean, it, it does have the beautiful game um, or it does have the nickname, the beautiful game for a reason. Um, and, and you see this throughout the world cup. It's one of my favorite things. And I, I guess this is because I'm just dark and twisted, but like, there is a certain beauty in scrolling through my Instagram feed and seeing the faces of the players who have lost as well. It, I just really like how soccer is as much about the sport and the talent that we see and that you know our eyes are blessed with to watch as it is the passion and the pain and the glory. It, it, it really is the beautiful game. Yeah, 100%. And like have you seen the video where like every like all the roads and like the interstate and everything is just covered in people in Argentina? I didn't see that, but I saw the clip of the dude riding his bike as the penalty shootout was going on. He was riding up and down the street uh, street in uh, Buenos Aires, and it was yeah. absolutely the the eruption. I mean, like you could easily tell that there wasn't an apartment complex. There wasn't anybody that wasn't tuned into that game. And it, it was amazing to see, but I, I want to hear about the, the street party though. Yeah. So it, it was actually, it was helicopter footage. Oh, I did see down. that. I did see that. Yeah. Yes. Like that is something you don't see. No, no not at all. It, it's, it's beautiful. It was amazing. And I, even as a, like a non-Argentinian, I, I would just so love to be there. I mean, like, you would be hugging random people. I, it would just be such a time. Uh, it, it would be amazing. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I listened to you talk about uh, your Ronaldo and Messi kind of, like, story, whereas mine, you know, it started with Messi because, you know, my introduction to soccer, like, I never played soccer um I wasn't a fan. My parents didn't watch it. I watched baseball and football. And my introduction was my older brother buying or uh, getting FIFA 14 for Christmas. And on the cover of that game was Lionel Messi. And so that face was the first, literally the first bit of soccer I ever watched and I ever saw. And so I've, you know, from then on favored Messi over anybody. Yeah. Uh, 14, by the way, man, what a FIFA to start on. I, I can say that I was, oh. I was not as fortunate enough as you to start on that FIFA. I think mine was 08 or 09. It was, uh, whichever one had Rooney and Ronaldinho on the cover may have been 10. Um, yeah, I mean, Messi is an icon to all of us. And I, I don't know if you ever saw this clip, Grayson, but th this Argentinian journalist put it best. Um, it, it was a female interviewing Messi, and she literally told him, like, straight up, like, 
hey man, it result of this game literally doesn't fucking matter. You have like pretty much given us hope, purpose. I, Messi is he is just such an icon, and and I would say more more so than Ronaldo, more so than Ronaldo. Messi's reach is very very it, it is it's much bigger than Ronaldo's and and you you just attested to that as an american who bought FIFA 14 Messi's on the cover that's who you idolize yeah yeah it was a, a big shift for me you know that you know got me interested in in soccer and got me to view the 2014 world cup because of world cup mode near the end of that oh one. i forgot and, about like, that Oh, man. I was paying attention to like the Premier League because I like figured out that it was on TV and, you know, like it, it was huge for me. And now like I, I'm definitely a soccer fan. I wouldn't consider myself like an, uh, it, it's definitely not like something I'm always paying attention to. But especially when the World Cup comes around or the Euros, it, even Copa America, like I pay attention and um, it, it's been awesome. I'm I'm glad to have you on board. Your your soccer knowledge is uh, ridiculous. I appreciate it. Sure. So now we're going to get into this week's stake your claim and uh I'm going to go ahead and just get it started. And this one is soccer related. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. I'm going to sound like the most American <laughs> bigoted soccer fan ever. Oh my god, if you go where I think just, you're going. Real quick. No, I'm not going to say the stupid, <laughs> if all of our athletes played soccer. No, I'm not doing that, okay? Because we don't need them. Yeah. The U.S. men's national team will cement themselves as the best team in CONCACAF by the time that the 2026 World Cup comes around. And then, at that point, they will be a strong contender when that World Cup arrives in North America. You know what? I like it, Grayson. I, I actually agree with this hot take. Mexico, are they're kind of in shambles right now. I don't really know of any young talent that they have that'll be, you know, even better by the time the next World Cup rolls around or CONCACAF, like you just said. America, only gone up from here. Only going to go up from here. Yeah, like, the only the only team that outside of america so what the three concacaf representatives in the world cup right there was only three it was us mexico and canada i think you could even is that, is that i correct? think it is yeah and i i think you could even see canada in the next couple of years passing mexico as well possibly i don't know they they looked really bad at this world they did, cup but they they were but promising obviously alfonso davies uh, is uh, world class uh, probably the best um not even just left back, the best fullback in the world. Wow. That should have been your take. <laughs> it probably should have, but you know, I'll just let that one like be. It, and maybe we'll revisit that at some point. But no, I truly do think that the men's national team is in a position to continue becoming better. Look, the youth is coming up. We've got a young captain in Tyler Adams. Christian Pulisic, yeah, he doesn't get a ton of playing time at Chelsea, but he shows out for his country. Yeah. And as we continue to go on and, you know, with the success that we saw, look, most countries wouldn't consider just making it to the knockout stage as a huge success. But for a team that didn't qualify uh, in 2018, 
um, fell short in 2014. We needed this. And I think that there was, it, it seemed like there was way more excitement uh, among everyone uh, of all generations for this World Cup in the U.S. And now there's going to be more kids that want to play soccer. There's going to be more kids that want to really take it seriously. And I just think that our, you know, resources for soccer are going to continue to get better. And uh, that's why I truly do think that the U.S. has a chance that within the next four years, we can become a, a true contender, like like a top six favorite to win the wow. World Cup. Wow, okay, that, that's definitely bold, but I, I'm actually with you on this one. I, I'm, I'm 100% behind this hot take, and, and I think, though, one thing that has to change, and this is a very deep, systematic thing here in America, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic hit it on the head whenever he played for LA Galaxy. Um, he told the story of when he was trying to put his two sons into, um, you know, like the best soccer academy in like the L.A. area. And he couldn't believe how expensive soccer was in this country. And Lawson actually pointed out that he think that I think he said that he thinks it's a big reason why um, the United States are kind of like we're always lacking in, in the World Cup and in international tournaments is because to play soccer in this country, it, it's not cheap. It's not like baseball, and it's not like football. Um, over in Europe, you know, it, it seems to be kind of free. <laughs> you know, you just kind of get recruited off the street, and you just keep working your way up. In America, it, it's just simply not that way. And I, I feel like for um, us to really be a top six, I definitely think we'll get better in the World Cup and, you know, as time goes on. But I think for us to be top six, systematically something has to change in this country. And, and I think it will. I think that, you know, right now, soccer is relatively exclusive because there's not enough money in it for them to warrant lowering the prices uh, of, you know, like the barrier to entry is much higher because, you know, these people need to stay afloat. The people that run, you know, the the different um, uh, teams and leagues and and any type of training resources the people need to stay afloat. So they have to charge a high number because, you know, they're not getting as many people as a, a, a baseball performance training center or a football performance training center. So I, I get why it's expensive. But if more kids start playing youth soccer, the prices will lower and the, the barrier to entry will be significantly lower. Yeah, and I, I feel like even you know, just based off of this World Cup alone with all the hype that it, you know, created around here, you could even see that probably in, you know, recent, in a, a near future. Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I think that things will change within the next year uh, when it comes to the infrastructure of youth soccer in America. Yeah, no, I, I love that take, Grayson. I, I'm behind it. All right. Well, then let's hear what you've got. So, May not be that hot of a take, but I, I still like it, um, and I think you will too. I think we're actually both going to agree with each other's hot takes uh, tonight. Fuck Purdy, motherfuckers. He'll be a Super Bowl champion this year. Simple as that. Yeah. He, he has the defense behind him, and I seriously think with how that defense is, if he plays even well enough, the 49ers could e easily win the Super Bowl this year. Maybe not easily, but they're – 
I, they're definitely my favorite to win it now. That defense is crazy. And like I said, if he does just enough, they will continue to win games and they will continue to win games in the playoffs. Dude, I, I couldn't possibly agree more. Um, I still do think the Bengals have a chance. You know, once they get into the playoffs, it's a redemption tour. Is that is that your simple and, prediction? Bengals Niners? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it has been for weeks. And I'm so glad uh, on how it's gone so far. So I'm glad to hear that you, you the 49ers, uh, you've got them. So, yeah, obviously, like that defense is ridiculous. Me and Brock drool over it once a week when we talk about how they played the past weekend. And. Like they've got literally that defense could be the NFC Pro Bowl defense, and I wouldn't have a problem with. I it. wouldn't either. They're they're so entertaining. They're vicious. They create turnovers. They they're everything that you want in a defense. Yeah, like Talanoa Hufanga, Fred Warner, Chavarius Ward. Don't even get me started on Bosa. That man's winning the Defensive Player of the Year. Oh wow! Okay, I like it. So, yeah, there's there's some good things going on in San Fran, and and Brock Purdy is part of that. Brock Purdy 100% is a part of why anybody believes that they can make the Super Bowl. Look, we all know he's a young guy. He's got three starts in the NFL. But kind of like what I talked about earlier today where I think that Gardner Minshew can fill in and the Eagles' offense can still run efficiently, it's the same thing with Brock Purdy, except Brock Purdy and Jimmy Garoppolo aren't too far apart when it comes to their skill sets. Obviously, Jimmy's got the experience. Jimmy's been to NFC Championship games. So, to a Super Bowl. It, yeah, he's been to a Super Bowl. And so, like, yeah, that, that makes it a little bit different. But Brock Purdy and Jimmy Garoppolo have a ton of parallels. And me and Brock talked about this a couple weeks ago. But I... I I 100% agree. I think that the 49ers, if not winning the Super Bowl, will most definitely make the NFC Championship game. Yeah, and I, I don't even feel like, you know, of course we call this segment Stake Your Claim. I me, this isn't really even, it's not even really that big of a hot take. The, the Niners just genuinely look that good. I, I think the hot take part of it is just, you know, the sentence, Brock Purdy is a Super Bowl champion. That there That's where the hot take lies, but... Truthfully, th- this team definitely can do it, and they can do it if Brock Purdy continues on the track that he's on. Dude, I love that take. He would. <laughs> All right. Well, Luke, do you have anything else for the people? No, uh, it's uh, 248. But if you've made it this far, I appreciate you. And also, you should follow us on all of our social media platforms. At uh, We're on TikTok at Second and Short Pod, uh, and the word... Uh, not the symbol like we use in everything else. And then on Instagram, we are second short pod uh, as well as Twitter. Um, so yeah, make sure you guys check that stuff out. And uh, with that being said, I will catch y'all on Tuesday and I'll be back with Luke next Friday or sorry, I'll catch y'all on Wednesday and I will be back with Luke on Friday. Um, 